Um, who wants to tell the Boomer Esiasons and Shannon Sharps and Mike Golicks and Colin Cowherds that the running back position rarely determines the outcome of football games and that Leonard Fournette is not the reason the Jacksonville Jaguars are in the AFC Conference Championship game. I mean, what is going on? This incessant offensive bias is offensive to me, and it should be offensive to anyone who appreciates the play of NFL defensive players. If you appreciate defense, then you need to be offended by the analysis around Leonard Fournette. Because what I'm hearing is, this is Leonard Fournette's team. And Leonard Fournette willed the Jaguars to victory. That Leonard Fournette is the key to the Jacksonville Jaguars making the Super Bowl. And it's just, it's just I can't! No, just please stop it! Just stop it! Stop it! Enough! Uninformed nonsense analysis. Just so pervasive this time of year. January is the worst because at the beginning of January, we had the coaching carousel. Ah, oh, the coach talk, the coach centric analysis. Painful, just as painful as NFL player talk. The clutch gene. Does your team have the willpower to make the Super Bowl? Just useless nonsense analysis. That's all January is. I want to move to a different country in January, one in the other hemisphere, somewhere warm, like Australia or Brazil, and just live there for the month of January, having no contact with the National Football League. Maybe watch a couple games on mute. That's it. I'll watch a handful of playoff games in the Super Bowl on mute, and that's it! Because I just can't take it! I just can't take it. My wife and I are out to drinks with friends Sunday night, and we're watching the Saints-Vikings game. And of course, our friends want to talk to me about football because I'm informed. It's always nice to talk to someone who's informed when discussing that subject matter. That makes sense. So I understand that the men in the group would gravitate to me. And while the end of that game was unfolding... Truly captivating action at the end of that Saints-Vikings game. Remember that game? You see that game? Pretty good game, huh? Yeah, pretty good game. Pretty good game. Yeah, pretty compelling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. pretty good. Yeah. What did they want to talk about? Leonard Fournette. How about that Leonard Fournette? That Leonard Fournette guy's a stud. And you can see my face, right? You can see my face. I want to be agreeable. I'm not argumentative. I want to have a good time. I want to make people smile and laugh when we go out. That's my goal. My goal is not to be the clever contrarian when I'm out for drinks. That's just not it. No one wants to be out for drinks with the clever contrarian. Nobody. Don't be that guy. I'm not that guy. You shouldn't be that guy. No one should be that guy. And I get it. And so my face just contorts as I'm trying to watch Drew Brees and his Saints win a road playoff game. And march on in hopes of seeing a Tom Brady-Drew Brees Super Bowl. It's a dream Super Bowl matchup. The two best teams in the playoffs, Patriots and Saints. I wanted to see that. So I was fixated on the television. But their minds were fixated on Leonard Fournette. And I just couldn't do it. I couldn't just nod and say, yeah, he's really good. Yeah, he's a beast. I just couldn't do it. I knew that was the move. Just nod and move on. Nod and move on. 
Nobody wins when you argue in a social setting like that. It's not a move on. Eventually celebrate Stefan Diggs. That play was coming, but I couldn't. I couldn't. I just couldn't. I just, I, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. It's, I've had enough. I've just had enough of these know-nothing zombie analysts. Box score scouting, and not merely providing unhelpful analysis, providing inaccurate analysis and flooding the market with this inaccurate analysis, so much so that my friends eventually boomerang that analysis back to me at a bar. And I'm sick of it. I can't take it anymore. So I just bit my upper lip, looked down, slowly shook my head, and said, stud running back Leonard Fournette carrying the Jacksonville Jaguars on his shoulders to the AFC Championship game? <sighs> not so much. Ah, no, no, not so much. Shaking my head. And then you can see their reactions. I just looked up with puppy dog eyes and said, he's kind of overrated, guys. He's overrated. They're like, he's overrated? He scored three touchdowns. And I was like, yeah, I know. It's, uh, I can't necessarily lay it all out for you now, but just trust me. He's overrated. Just trust me. Overrated. Because it's a fact. Leonard Fournette is overrated. And at this point in time in the NFL, no player is more overrated than Leonard Fournette. Not even Deshaun Watson. <laughs> Enough time has gone by. Enough questions are now swirling around Deshaun Watson and his torn ACL that he's no longer the most overrated player in the league. Because at least Deshaun Watson is a quarterback. And the fortunes of NFL teams swing greatly based on quarterback play, not based on running back play. Leonard Fournette is not the reason the Jacksonville Jaguars are in the AFC Championship game. It is their defense and their defense alone that allowed them to be in this position. Fournette is not the reason the Jacksonville Jaguars are in the AFC Championship game, but Blake Bortles will be the reason they lose. The defense can carry Blake Bortles only so far, and Leonard Fournette is not a difference maker on offense. He's just not. A, because he's a running back, and running backs do not swing the outcomes of NFL football games, and B, he's not one of the NFL's truly elite special backs. He's not. He shared a field with one of the NFL's truly special elite backs last week, Le'Veon Bell. Leonard Fournette is not Le'Veon Bell. Leonard Fournette is not close to Le'Veon Bell. That's my point. And because Leonard Fournette isn't close to Le'Veon Bell and the running back position as a whole is overvalued, Leonard Fournette himself is the most overvalued player in the National Football League. And the only thing going for Leonard Fournette is he's not making an absurd amount of money yet. He's still on his rookie deal, but he is at the first round level on the rookie wage scale. So he's not cheap. He's not Kareem Hunt inexpensive. He's the most expensive rookie running back in the league. Alvin Kamara, there's value. Kareem Hunt, there's real value. Aaron Jones, oh my! Value City! Leonard Fournette, not so much. The Jacksonville Jaguars are in the AFC Championship game because of their defense, because of Jalen Ramsey, because of A.J. Boye, because of Calais Campbell, because of Miles Jack, because of Malik Jackson, because of Aaron Colvin. Aaron Colvin, who has the lowest target rate among cornerbacks in the NFL. And, of course, because of Telvin Smith. Telvin Smith and his 14 solo tackles last week. 
That's why the Jacksonville Jaguars are in the Super Bowl. That should be the sole focus. No one needs to talk about Leonard Fournette because his contributions on the football field don't provide the requisite marginal value to move the needle in a conversation about the performances that determine the outcomes of football games. It's just wearying to sit where I sit and see the sport through a different lens than the public than my friends, than professional football analysts being paid millions of dollars to speak untruths about the performances that matter and the dynamics that determine wins and losses. The Jacksonville Jaguars will not win the Super Bowl, and it will have nothing to do with how Leonard Fournette plays. It will have everything to do with Blake Bortles, their fatal flaw, their Achilles heel, having a game like he had two weeks ago against Buffalo where they score 10 points. Because you score 10 points against the Patriots, you're done. You score 17 points against the Patriots, you're done. You need to score points against the Patriots. And can you imagine Bill Belichick's face and Matt Patricia's face as they analyze film on Blake Bortles, as they try to identify (laughs) Blake Bortles' weaknesses? In meetings with their defense, imagine discussing the entity that is Blake Bortles. Blake Bortles, who can't throw. He can't throw. He just shot puts the ball out there and hopes good things happen. And in clutch situations, when they need a first down on third and six, what does he do? He throws a one hopper on the out route to Marquise Lee. Every time, every time. If it's not a wide open shot put, the ball will likely be incomplete if Blake Bortles is throwing it. And Blake Bortles is particularly atrocious when throwing the ball 20 yards or more downfield. His deep ball completion percentage, which is my favorite among the advanced quarterback completion percentage metrics on playerprofiler.com, Blake Bortles' 25.4% deep ball completion percentage was outside the top 32 quarterbacks in the NFL. Think about that. And if you think about last weekend's game against the Steelers, you put it in context, Blake Bortles did not help the Jacksonville Jaguars win that game. Was I the only one watching? I mean, I rarely watch football games. I happen to watch this particular football game, and I felt like I was the only one watching because the game was 28-7, and Blake Bortles was 7 for 14 for 83 yards. So what am I missing here? What impressive playoff performance was I missing? What a gift the Patriots have received in Blake Bortles in the AFC Championship game. (laughs) And it's a shame. It's really a shame because I love this Jacksonville Jaguars story. I love worst to first. And they would be the favorite to win the Super Bowl if they just had Patrick Mahomes under center. That's all it would take. It doesn't take a lot. It doesn't take Tom Brady or Drew Brees. You just need a competent quarterback, a quarterback that can make plays with his arm, a quarterback who could push the ball downfield accurately, who's capable of the deep touchdown dagger. That's Patrick Mahomes. A quarterback who can roll out and throw with accuracy on the run. That's Patrick Mahomes. Those traits do not describe Blake Bortles at all. And yet, the Jacksonville Jaguars had a golden opportunity. Golden. In the fourth pick in the NFL draft. Just the perfect selection. Where they had their pick. They could either have Deshaun Watson, who the film guys love. Or Patrick Mahomes, who the analytics guys love. I mean, either one would have been an enormous upgrade over Blake Bortles. You don't want to believe me? You don't want to believe an analytics guy? Fine. How about a film guy? The guy that watches the most film at Bleacher Report? Chris Sims? He agrees with me. 
He has Blake Bortles ranked outside his top 60 NFL quarterbacks. He has Chad Henney ranked above Blake Bortles, as I did preseason. Blake Bortles misses numerous throws that a lot of college quarterbacks would complete. If you could teleport in Baker Mayfield in place of Blake Bortles, the Jacksonville Jaguars would beat the Patriots this weekend. Certainly with Patrick Mahomes or a healthy Deshaun Watson, the Jacksonville Jaguars would beat the Patriots. And I don't even think it would be close. I think they'd beat them by 10 on the road. But Blake Bortles is the quintessential NFL Achilles heel. You can't win with that guy. And if the Jaguars were competent self-scouters, they would have identified Blake Bortles as the glaring weakness on the roster and replaced him in the NFL draft with either Deshaun Watson or Patrick Mahomes, those two quarterbacks were drafted within the next 10 picks. But no, 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 no. What'd they do? What'd they do? They drafted Leonard Fournette because they wanted to change the team's identity. That's right. They wanted to become a running team. Leonard Fournette was an identity pick. When you make picks based on feeling and identity and not based on effects on the football field you can actually measure and then take those measurements and weigh the probabilities, which is what analytics does, you end up drafting Leonard Fournette over a Patrick Mahomes or a Deshaun Watson. And it dooms your franchise. The analytics-based talent acquisition approach would be to create a well-balanced team that accumulates best value at the highest value positions on the field. The highest value position by far and away is quarterback. We talked to Drew Dinkmeyer about this. He's run the numbers. And when he ran the numbers, he concluded if a team has two first-round picks and they need a quarterback, they should draft two quarterbacks in the first round. That's how important the position is. And yet, the Jacksonville Jaguars ignored it in the previous draft. They didn't merely ignore it in the first round. They ignored the need altogether in the draft, which is an unspeakable failure of player personnel evaluation, of roster talent optimization. That should have been a career-ending blunder by the general manager. But it will not be. It will not be because now the general manager is getting credit for drafting Leonard Fournette because mainstream football analysts are assigning Leonard Fournette credit for this Jacksonville rebirth. They're assigning him as much credit as they are the defense when the credit should be skewed 99% defense, 1% running game. But what we're getting right now from sports media analysts making millions of dollars is, oh, it's 50-50. And that is preposterous. And drafting Leonard Fournette over Patrick Mahomes or Deshaun Watson was a catastrophe. And this cost will not be internalized by Jacksonville fans because this season is being perceived as a success. Look at the difference in our team from last year to this year. We won! This is essentially the championship. We went from 3-13 and to the AFC championship game. That's the most you could ever ask for. This is a Cinderella season. This is just gravy. This is the cherry on top. This is all we could ask for. We're playing with house money now. That's right. That's right. No, you're not. This AFC championship game at New England is not a house money game for the Jacksonville Jaguars. It is a critical game because Super Bowl windows are fleeting, especially those fueled by generational defenses. Look what's happening in Seattle. All their coordinators have been fired. Don't be surprised when Seattle management burns that roster to the ground. After one Super Bowl championship, one very early in Russell Wilson's career, 
Super Bowl windows are fleeting, especially those fueled by generational defenses. In recent memory, Seattle Seahawks won Super Bowl. Denver Broncos won Super Bowl. And now you could argue the Seattle Seahawks and the Denver Broncos are two of the most talent-deficient rosters in the NFL. And it happened like that! But all of this is a house money game. Yeah, yeah, house money. Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. Sure, keep thinking that. We'll have so many chances at a Super Bowl the next 10 years because of this defense. Sure, sure, go ahead. Keep thinking that. Keep thinking that. Go ahead. Keep excusing away abominable picks by the front office, such as Leonard Fournette over Patrick Mahomes or Deshaun Watson. But, 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 but Leonard Fournette's a stud. Remember, you were at that bar with your friends and they were glowing while talking about Leonard Fournette. Just an avalanche of superlatives. I remember, I was there, yeah. And I didn't have the time nor the inclination to explain to these men that the value differential between Leonard Fournette and TJ Yeldon is small. Just look at the numbers. TJ Yeldon had a better season this year than Leonard Fournette. TJ Yeldon has had a more successful career on a per-touch basis than Leonard Fournette. Leonard Fournette ran for 3.9 yards per carry this year. 4.4 yards per touch. Last year on a 3-13 team, TJ Yeldon, 4.3 yards per touch. Wait, what? Huh? How about this year? With the improved offensive line, TJ Yeldon, 6.0 yards per touch. Leonard Fournette, 4.4 yards per touch. But do I believe TJ Yeldon's a better runner than Leonard Fournette? Of course not. But if you watched the Jaguars play the Steelers last week, what did you see? You saw TJ Yeldon making as many plays as Leonard Fournette on a per-touch basis. You could argue that when TJ Yeldon touched the ball, better things happened. He looked more electric. TJ Yeldon was the Jaguars' leading receiver. He had three catches for 57 yards. Leonard Fournette had two catches for 10 yards on more targets. That's the problem with Leonard Fournette. That's why he's not Le'Veon Bell. He's not Ezekiel Elliott. He's not Kareem Hunt. He's not even Dalvin Cook. I would argue that Leonard Fournette is not even a top five rookie running back. In this Jacksonville Jaguars offense, Alvin Kamara would be more productive. Kareem Hunt would be more productive. Dalvin Cook would be more productive. Christian McCaffrey would be more productive, and Joe Mixon would be more productive. Why? Because these players are much better in the passing game. And in Dynasty Leagues, I'd just as soon have Derrick Henry as Leonard Fournette. And I own Leonard Fournette in a handful of Dynasty Leagues. When I drafted him, I didn't want to draft him, but I drafted him based on opportunity, knowing I could trade him this offseason, and I will. We talked about this last year. If you have an opportunity to draft a true workhorse running back, and you know the team is fully invested in his success, you have to draft him, knowing that the following offseason, you can parlay that into a treasure trove of assets, and I intend to do that. I'll start by proposing Leonard Fournette for Derrick Henry and a future first-round pick. That's how you win Dynasty Leagues. I don't love to sell high, but there are certain players in certain situations that demand you sell high, and Leonard Fournette is that player in that situation now in Dynasty Leagues. And this is how you stockpile assets and build a juggernaut in Dynasty. You trade two equivalent running backs and in the process acquire a future first rounder for free. That's what I plan to do with Leonard Fournette this offseason. Because I appreciate Derrick Henry's ability more than consensus. And we'll go out and find that one owner who believes Leonard Fournette is the best running back in the NFL. Because at this point, after three touchdowns against the Steelers, 
a lot of people believe Leonard Fournette is the back to own in Dynasty Leagues, and they are wrong. Matchups matter. Pittsburgh was a notorious run-funnel defense this past season. Anyone that played DFS understood this. So it was no surprise that Pittsburgh's strategy was allow Leonard Fournette to get his and bait Blake Bortles into turnovers. That was their strategy. It didn't work, but that was their strategy going into the game. That was their game plan. Leonard Fournette rolled up well over 100 yards against the Steelers earlier this season. So you saw this coming. If Leonard Fournette were out and TJ Yeldon were starting, it would have been TJ Yeldon scoring three touchdowns and rolling up over 100 yards. And that would have sparked conversations about, oh, this TJ Yeldon guy, he's a great guy to stash in Dynasty. When his contract is up, he'll sign a big free agent deal elsewhere. Make sure you get TJ Yeldon. That would be the conversation had Leonard Fournette not played last week. And we've seen instances in which Leonard Fournette didn't play throughout the 2017 season. And what did Vegas do? What was the reaction by Las Vegas bookmakers when Leonard Fournette was a game-time decision? Did they take the game off the board? No. Jameis Winston was a game-time decision for multiple games this season with a sore shoulder. Leading up to those games, you couldn't bet on the Buccaneers. Bookmakers wouldn't allow you to until they knew the status of Jameis Winston. You could always bet on Jacksonville. Because, like myself, the analytics teams at Vegas Bookmakers know that the marginal difference between Leonard Fournette and TJ Yeldon is fairly negligible. When Leonard Fournette was out, it did not move the line. And when Leonard Fournette was out, the Jaguars' offense was actually much more efficient. But when Jameis Winston was out, the line moved significantly. Why? Because quarterback is a much more significant driver of the events and outcomes on the football field. Which takes me back to the Leonard Fournette draft pick. The Jacksonville Jaguars should have understood this dynamic and drafted a quarterback. Not Leonard Fournette! Because you can do the thought exercise. If Leonard Fournette were not the running back, then what? It would be TJ Yeldon and Corey Grant. It would be a committee where the running backs would be fresher in the second half when they receive the football. And the running game would be less predictable because TJ Yeldon and Corey Grant offer significant differences in skill set. A Yeldon-Grant committee would be more situationally optimal because when you want to run a screenplay, you can throw it to Grant and he can score a 50-yard touchdown. Corey Grant gives you the splash plays. TJ Yeldon gives you the consistency and the ball security. The difference between Yeldon and Fournette is small, and I believe a Yeldon-Grant committee would be more optimal than just deploying Leonard Fournette as a workhorse. And I know I am the only one who believes this, but it's backed up by the numbers. When you have a Le'Veon Bell who gives you a strategic advantage in all phases, you deploy him as your bell cow back. But it is suboptimal to deploy a between-the-tackles grinder in a bell cow role because he's not a good receiver. That's why he and Derrick Henry are very similar. He's actually a slightly better receiver than Derrick Henry, but Derrick Henry is more explosive. They're very similar players. But again, no one else wants to talk about that. They just want to celebrate the three touchdowns against the run-funnel defense. But if we go back to the 2017 NFL Draft, where the Jacksonville Jaguars made a franchise-defining catastrophic error, a blunder that will resonate for a decade, I would point to a simple precept that it is never a good idea to draft a running back in the top 10. Never. Why? Because the passing game determines the outcome of NFL games. Period. That's why. J.J. Zacharyson talked about this precise phenomenon on the most recent episode of the Late Round Podcast. 
You want to accumulate assets that help you become a more efficient passing offense and allow you to degrade the pass offenses of your competitors that improve your pass defense. Those are the priorities, especially with those high-value premium draft picks in the top 10. If you're drafting in the top 10, you need to zero in on playmakers that can become critical pieces to either drive your own passing game efficiency or drive down your opponent's passing game efficiency. That means focusing on the cornerstone left tackles, the pass rushers, and those anchor cornerbacks in the secondary, as well as, of course, their quarterbacks. That's why the previous year in 2016, the Dallas Cowboys would have been much better off drafting Jalen Ramsey in the first round and then Derrick Henry in the second round. That was a franchise-altering blunder by the Dallas Cowboys. I believe if the Dallas Cowboys had Jalen Ramsey on the roster last season, they would have beaten the Green Bay Packers in the playoffs. That is the hidden cost of the RB luxury pick in the top 10. And look at the best running backs in the league. Le'Veon Bell, not a first-round pick. David Johnson, not a first-round pick. Alvin Kamara, not a first-round pick. Kareem Hunt, not a first-round pick. Devontae Freeman, not a first-round pick. But the best rookie cornerback this year was also the first one drafted, Marshawn Lattimore. And if Jalen Ramsey and Marshawn Lattimore's recent performances have taught us anything, it's that the anchor cornerbacks are one of the safest possible positions you can draft in the top 10. That's why Minka Fitzpatrick deserves first overall consideration by the Cleveland Browns. It's not a foregone conclusion that the Browns are going to draft a quarterback. If I were the Browns, I would draft either Minka Fitzpatrick or Bradley Chubb at one, and Baker Mayfield, who is the best quarterback in this class, at four. That's what I would do to optimize the talent of my roster. And later this week, Evan Silva will be joining the Roto Underworld Radio podcast to talk about the Browns and who they should focus on in the 2018 NFL Draft. Not draft Saquon Barkley. If you draft Saquon Barkley in the top 10, that is a mistake. And I believe Saquon Barkley will be the best running back in the NFL since David Johnson. Perhaps since LaDainian Tomlinson. He's that good. I think he's a generational talent. And it doesn't matter because he's a running back. And the passing game is what determines the outcome of NFL games. That's what drives wins and losses. So as long as players like Marshawn Lattimore, who went outside the top 10, and Jalen Ramsey, and Bradley Chubb, and Connor Williams, and Josh Jackson this year are available in the top 10, you need to draft them over a Saquon Barkley. And looking back at this Leonard Fournette draft pick, as we watch the careers of Fournette and Mahomes and Watson play out, it will look more and more and more and more like an apocalyptic blunder by the Jacksonville Jaguars front office. And these are the kinds of topics we love to discuss on the Sonic Truth podcast. So today, I give you the best of the Sonic Truth. And this is a melancholy show because Nate Liss will not be coming back for the 2018 season of the Sonic Truth podcast. I received that news today. The clips have been compiled. I'm ready to publish the show, and I received the news from Nate that he's made his final decision. He's not coming back. It's over. It's very sad. I love Nate List. The show is great. It won't be the same without him, but it will go on, and he will be a guest. We won't forget Nate List, and today we memorialize him with the best the Sonic Truth podcast had to offer in 2017.
What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Sonic Truth Dynasty podcast. I'm your host, Nate Liss. You can find me on Twitter at an outraged Jew. And with me, as always, is Mr. Matt Kelly. You can find him on Twitter at fantasy underscore mansion. Matt, what is happening? You sound tired. I feel tired. That was not the most enthusiastic intro to the show. I mean, you could do better. Want to try again? I, I mean, no, but yes, I guess I'll do it. Did you feel like that went well? I mean, it felt about normal, which is starting to make me think that all of them have been poor. I can I can do one more, a little more enthusiastic. No, they're usually better than that. I think the audience would agree. Contact mm. the show at Sonic Truth Pod <laughs> at Roto Wonderworld. Was that good to start the show? <laughs> Go ahead and start her again. Start her back up. Start the lawnmower back up. All right, I'm tilting already. Here we go. Put a smile on your face. I can't smile and say it. Take a breath. Energy. Okay. You're excited to be here, Nate. I, okay. I, I'm going to go. Here we go. It's like double dutch. I'm jumping in. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Sonic <laughs> Truth. <laughs> God. Oh, my God. I don't know how I'm supposed to do this. <laughs> that was... Was that worse? I've never heard you be more disingenuous in my life. Uh, we should just get into the show. I don't think we're ever going to get this. You were you would be the worst actor ever. Try it again. Just be yourself, but turn the dial up. Be myself, tennis. More amplitude. An amplified Nateless. Go. All right. What's up, everybody? Stop Welcome it. to no, Sonic. No, 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 no. Stop, stop, stop. No, no. You're not. Now you're being an asshole. Just do the normal intro with a little bit more energy than you did the first time. I thought that was the second time. All right, here we go. No, now you're just don't be an asshole. Come on. All right. I'm, I'm trying to don't be it. a clown. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Sonic Truth Dynasty podcast. I'm your host, Nate Liss. You can find me on Twitter at an outraged Jew. And with me, as always, is Mr. Matt Kelly. You can find him on Twitter at fantasy underscore mansion. Matt, how's it going tonight? There. There you how was that hard? You weren't close enough to the microphones. It was a little quiet. It, but other than that, you nailed it. That's what we need. That's the energy level we need to start off the Sonic Truth podcast. This is not an every week podcast anymore. It's every month. This is a special occasion. It should feel special. It does. It feels really special. I now did that three times. It's a lot. It's three episodes worth. So I'm reading a book right now. It's called Everybody Lies, and it's fascinating. It's about how internet search results compared with surveys, in some cases, drastically diverge from survey data. That what individuals believe they're reporting privately in surveys is dishonest. Even though it's anonymous, they're still dishonest. The only way you can get an honest picture of what human beings are thinking and how they're acting is to study how they interact with Google. No better example than the presidency, the last presidential election. The search results showed you, uh-oh, Hillary's in trouble. But the polling data suggested she was a lock. Do you know what the most interesting stat that I've gleaned from the Everybody Lies book is? Most interesting stat? Ooh. I don't know, Matt. What is the most interesting stat? Well, they both revolve around sexuality. Yes. <laughs> Whoa, that was... <laughs> There's the enthusiasm we're looking for. Yes, wow. Yes, this is what this show is needed. Put a little life in it. Yes, you were woo, you were infused. Wow. As it turns out, women don't care about penis size much at all. 
Men are obsessed with it. In fact, searches around and about penis size by men exceed those by women, outnumber searches by women, 170 to 1. Wow. Wow. Men think it's a really big deal. Women don't care. 170 to 1. Think about that. I'm not sure that women don't care. I'm not sure that they don't care. They do. Actually, when they do search for penis size, guess what it's about? (sighs) Okay. Well, the obvious one to me seems like it's... I don't want to jump to conclusions here. Um, Well, size seems like the most obvious one, but I'm assuming it's not size, correct? Are you listening to what I'm saying? You're not listening to the show. I said, when women search for topics around and about penis size, specifically... Well, length. It's because they have concerns about it being too big. That is... Very, very, very few women go to Google and ask... What do I do with a small penis? Or just state flatly, my lover's penis is too small. It just doesn't happen. More often than not, if they're searching around that topic, it's because it's too big and it hurts. Okay, first off, what are you going to do with it? There's not a hidden hole. It's going to go in the same place. So either don't do it or do it. It doesn't matter. There's not a, It's not like a fifth meal or fourth meal that Taco Bell claims. What the fuck are you talking about? I'm just saying... If you're worried that it's too big or if it's actually too big, then don't hit it. Quit it. That's what I'm saying. I'm trying to let the people know that if it's a problem, then step away. There's nowhere else to put it. The point is the physical act is not an obsession like it is with men. That's the whole point. Someone needs to talk about this NFL Network scandal. No one's talking about it. It's like it never happened. I see one deadspin report and zero conversations on Twitter about it. No one wants to talk about the vaunted NFL Network. Don't want to be on the record mocking or criticizing the NFL Network, even though the details on this lawsuit are egregious. I mean, not one, not two, not three, not four, not five employees. One woman, five employees. That's a lot. Part of my purpose in reading this article the first time was to make it to the end to see if there were more women involved. But no, it's just one. Are you familiar with the details of this? I don't know what to say, Matt. You know, um, I've heard a little bit of it. I'm not I'm not fully educated. I sent you the link to read. The one job you had before this show was to go read the article on Deadspin, which has copies of the original lawsuit. They have the documents. I was asked to do a lot of things before this show, Matt. This was not the one thing. I I will admit, per usual, I failed. I didn't read it. I see sexual harassment, though, and you told me it was only one woman. So I feel like I'm already pretty tuned into what's going on here. The allegation was against Marshall Falk, Warren Sapp, Donovan McNabb, Ike Taylor, Heath Evans, and a man named Eric Weinberger, who has since moved on to The Ringer. That's the Bill Simmons sports media vehicle. And the details of this are horrifying and yet not surprising, right? Because every day you open CNN.com and you see another high-profile celebrity is embroiled in a sexual harassment or sexual misconduct-related scandal. And every time I read one of these headlines, I think to myself, when is this going to touch sports? How are famous people in sports media 
not embroiled in these scandals. Because while there are certainly scumbags in Hollywood, as we've seen, the athletes in our culture are not typically the most sophisticated members of the community. I mean, think back to high school. Who were the rudest, crudest members of your high school class? People in band. No, they were the jocks. Oh, yeah, that's right. So you're not allowed to be surprised that this is how the meathead gladiators make the transition from the locker room to corporate office suites. This is the least surprising article I've read in quite some time. This is how I expect the meatheads to act in a corporate environment, just not be able to turn off the locker room. So I think this is just the beginning. I think the scandals have been raging in Hollywood. This is just the first domino to fall in sports. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's not surprising, though. Just like you said, it's just finally this period of time that we're in right now. Things are coming out. People are empowered to speak out. You know, they've probably tried to speak out in the past. People like this had a lot of power. They're getting shooed away. But this is a period of time where if you've got a history, people are coming out. It's obviously about justice. Here's why I think more of these scandals will surface in the weeks and months ahead, because... The one who sent the text messages to Jamie Cantor, she was a wardrobe stylist at the NFL Network, so she helped the television analysts pick out their their suits, help them prepare for their on-camera work. She would receive text messages, and the lewd text messages came from the one guy listed here that wasn't a professional athlete, Eric Weinberger. He wrote, watching you walk down the hall makes me crazy. Your ass drives me insane. I mean, I think it's okay to laugh at this because we're laughing at the ridiculous bad judgment of meathead hornballs in sports media because when you put the meathead gladiators in close contact with women, they can't turn off the rock star personas that they cultivated over the years. I mean, are you familiar with Heath Evans? Unfortunately, yes. When you think of the quintessential meathead football analyst do you not think of heath evans that's the first one that comes to mind isn't he though definitely are you surprised that he sent nude pictures of himself on multiple occasions no i'm not text messages what are you doing Ah, text messages well it's not merely the disrespect that it shows it's the lack of common sense that's just stunning and here's another thing the eric weinberg guy that sent that message to her He's a complete idiot, and I'm not a woman, so I've never experienced sexual harassment on this level. These men are wired in a way that they expect the women in their orbit to worship them. The definition of misogyny is that you view women as objects to fulfill your desire, not as people. And that's essentially the case that Jamie Cantor is laying out here. It is a lesson for men on how not to behave in the workplace. Marshall Falk asked her for her favorite sexual position and whether or not she liked oral sex. He asked her that to her face. Marshall Falk invited Cantor to his hotel room and was stroking and pulling out his genitals in front of her, pointing his crotch at her and asking her, when are you going to get on this already? Was he whipping it around? Was he holding it down at the bottom to, to give it support? Yes. While he was gesticulating here? You know you know how it works. You got to find the perfect can light to stand underneath. You prep it out a little bit before you do it. The real question is, are you that confident? Are you going hard or are you going soft? 
How are you showing up? That is a good question. That's a great question. I don't know. I think that if I were ever in that circumstance, and I never will be in that circumstance, because I don't think I've ever been quite that horny, and I'm not an idiot. I mean, I've been very horny before, but this level of horny is not a horniness I've ever experienced. There's nothing worse than her going and telling people that you whipped it out in front of her and that's sexual harassment, and then also telling them that it didn't look that big. Crack that whip. Whip it. Whip it good. I mean, these guys. I mean, you read the details on this lawsuit. Eric Davis said, you look like you would be an animal in the sheets. Who says in the sheets? I have never in my life uttered the phrase in the sheets to a woman. We got to get in the sheets. Have you ever said that in the sheets? You ever uttered that phrase? Yeah, yes, I have. You, you have? Uh, there's definitely been a time or two in my younger days when I used the phrase lady in the streets, freak in the sheets. I think I think you've either heard that. If you have not said it, you've really missed a good window in your life to use it. You're well beyond it now. No offense. Do not use it now. And I haven't even reached the most salacious detail on this story. Don't forget Warren Sapp was named in this lawsuit. He's a good guy. Is he? No one named in this suit is ever allowed to be considered a good guy ever again. We're not talking about a single innuendo-based comment here. Rude solicitation after rude solicitation. So Jamie Cantor is preparing clothes for the analysts in one of the bathrooms. So they had to convert one of the bathrooms into essentially a changing area. And the analysts were asked to use a different bathroom to urinate. Well, that didn't stop Warren Sapp from walking into what had been converted into a changing area and peeing in the urinal. And when Ms. Cantor asked him to stop, he wheeled around and told her, sorry, mama, your office shouldn't be our shitter. (laughs) You're laughing, but that is incredibly demeaning to someone. And Warren Sapp thought it would be a good idea to give this woman sex toys as Christmas gifts. But he didn't send her a sex toy-themed Christmas gift once. Oh, no. He sent her sex toys three years in a row. Wow. Three years in a row, Nate. Put yourself in the mind of someone that is sending the same co-worker sex toys year after year after year at Christmas. Actually, don't put yourself in that person's mind. You don't want to be in that mind. You don't want to know what's in there. You don't want to see that darkness in the mind. In the mind. The second year is what I want to focus on because the previous year he sent a dildo, I'm speculating, and that didn't work the first year, but he thought, oh, oh, this year. This year he'll send her another dildo, and this is the year, or a different sex toy. No, no, last year's sex toy eh, didn't do the job, but this year I got the sex toy that's going to flip the switch. That's what was running through his mind. And then after the second year, the third year, he thought, you know what? I got an idea. Sex toy. That's it. That's what'll do it. Three years in a row at Christmas. Every year, he remembered to send the sex toy at Christmas. Did he have to put that in his calendar to remember? Oh, Christmas is here again. Oh, it really sneaks up on you. Gotta go shopping for that sex toy. 
What? It's the giving season, Matt. We get towards the end of the year. People are attempting to be thoughtful. Three years in a row, sex toys. Now, I don't know what they were. I mean, what if he made a mold of himself? I can see him doing that. I really can. It's just a soft mold, though. <laughs> what if we made a soft mold of your penis? Would that get the job done? Uh, I mean, I can give it three years in a row. <laughs> but what you're saying is... For your gift to have the necessary substance, it would require three years of soft penis molds. For it to really work with the effect that I need it to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would definitely send three years worth of soft penis molds to really get to the root of it. Okay, you got to be honest with yourself, though. You've got all these guys all sending similar messages, texts, verbally saying it in passing, crossing it a definite boundary, obvious sexual harassment. I got to believe that there was an open dialogue in some sense. I'm not justifying what they did. I just find it hard to believe with all these guys having so much to lose with one woman in particular. She took it this long. All I know is she filed a lawsuit allowing these details to become public. So no, I don't think that she wanted any of this. You know how people can gather on social media around a cause that they feel passionate about and sure. it turns ugly, it becomes an angry mob? Sure, it's the, yeah, the tribal mentality. The tribal mentality. The angry mob can be terrifying. And when a group of people get together and all act, in this case, inappropriately, they give license to one another to act this way, even though the woman is an unwilling participant. It's unspoken, but she's essentially been conspired against in her workplace. Like we've seen at Uber, for example, if you've read the exposés on the Uber corporate culture, those in leadership excuse away the behavior. They rationalize it. They ignore it. They put the complaints in a drawer and never look at them again. And when the bad behavior is consistently excused away, it emboldens the perpetrators to push further, to push further. And then there creates a feedback loop. The feedback loop is part of the culture in that you see someone else pushing a boundary. You decide to push the boundary a bit further. The next guy pushes the boundary a bit further. And this is how the details of this lawsuit end up playing out. It's not consistent. Over time, the behavior escalates because the corporate culture enables it. And in all of these instances, whether it's the NFL Network, whether it's Uber, it's a failure of leadership to intervene because always, 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 always there are initial reports that are ignored. The reporters silenced, marginalized. And then that creates a negative feedback loop where other women hear about how these incidents are not properly addressed, how the reporters were ostracized, and that serves as a disincentive for other employees to report the behavior, and the feedback loop continues. This was a failure of leadership as much as it was egregious behavior on the part of the analysts. I would guess that Jamie Cantor reported this before and that she was ignored and that at the upper levels of leadership, the behavior was trivialized and the reports rationalized away. I spoke to Aaron Coscarelli from the NFL Network about sexism in sports media and broadcasting. I asked her about this phenomenon a year ago, but my podcast and no medium was a safe place for her to discuss it. That's what we have now, which is incredibly encouraging. Now social media has become a safe space with the hashtag MeToo movement. It's a long time coming. And the NFL Network isn't the only place 
with a poisonous corporate culture. Oh, no. This metastasizes. Where do these individuals go on to work? Follow the breadcrumbs. Look at Mr. Super Horny, Eric Weinberger. He went to the ringer. What effect on the ringer's corporate culture did Eric Weinberger have? What corporate culture pre-existed at the ringer that would tempt Eric Weinberger to seek employment there? Think about it. As we sit and we wait for the next sports media personality to be implicated in a similar scandal, my guess is it will be a self-important power broker who is intoxicated by the sound of his own voice. Who is going to be the Bill O'Reilly of sports media? The sports media industry will have a Bill O'Reilly level personality implicated sooner rather than later. We just don't know who it is yet. In the meantime, we follow the breadcrumbs. Ah, the cultural topics that are only tangentially related to sports. My wife and I together have to finish this godforsaken OJ Made in America documentary. We finally, after eight hours and many, many nights, finished this goddamn documentary. <laughs> eight hours, Nate. It's too much. I, it would have been great as a four-hour documentary. Even then, I would have questioned it. But eight hours, I don't know. The reason I got sucked into it is because it started with OJ's early life, OJ at USC. And USC OJ was very interesting to me. It was football. So they got me hooked with football. And then the next thing I know, I'm passed out on the couch, drool coming off my face. 1.30 in the morning, I'm waking up wondering what happened where am i oh that's right i fell asleep during another oj made in america episode my wife also sound asleep next to me i would make it through half an episode before falling asleep my wife would make it through 15 minutes before falling asleep but we finally made it through the oj trial though it was very much like a sporting event that struck me because the oj trial was a spectacle much like a football game is a spectacle and the O.J. Simpson trial closely paralleled a sporting event because you had these passionate spectators with intense rooting interests on both sides. There was no in-between with O.J. Simpson. You either loved him and you wanted him to get off because he was a symbol, or you hated him, you thought he was a murderer, and you wanted him to go to jail for life. I mean, there was not a lot of middle ground. And I'm also not a big second-guesser. I come on here, and I lament the second-guessing that goes on, especially in sports. Always ready to jump in with the hindsight bias. You know hindsight bias very well, Nate. You specialize in hindsight bias. Oh, my God. A well-delivered shot to the gut. <laughs> so I'm not, I try to be objective. I try to identify the hindsight bias as it's happening and scrub it from my personality. But not in this case. I am happy to let the hindsight bias flow as I analyze the moves of one Gil Garcetti, the lead prosecutor in the people against O.J. Simpson, because he blew it. <laughs> Gil Garcetti blew it. <laughs> we always want to find fault. Remember Pete Carroll? He blew it because he didn't call a run play on the one yard line. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Don't blame Russell Wilson. You blame Pete Carroll. You need to find someone to blame. Well, in the O.J. Simpson case, I can tell you who to blame. Gil Garcetti. And his failure was driven by hubris. So in many ways, Gil Garcetti was like an NFL coach who loses the game because 
He's overconfident. And you can see why he would have been overconfident. He had a preponderance of evidence. Just everything you could possibly want to find a defendant guilty. Motive. No verifiable alibi. Matching footprints. Matching gloves at both the crime scene and the defendant's home. Matching blood samples. I mean, what else do you want? This was like a Christmas list of evidence to put a guy in jail with. So you could see why Gil Garcetti was so arrogant. Because it went beyond confidence. It wasn't just confidence. Yes, of course he was confident. But he was arrogant. Because and that's the only way to lose a case like that. Because if you go into a case like that with a humble approach, you're going to win. If you're always thinking worst case scenario, always expecting to lose, you're going to approach it from a completely different disposition, completely different sensibilities, attacking the case, because you have to actually try hard. You have to try extremely hard to lose a case like that. But that's exactly what Gilgar said he did. It's like he was trying to lose. You have to. You have to try to lose a case like that because they had everything. I'm not even a lawyer, and I could have won that case. <laughs> I would have won that trial. Absolutely. I'm Gil Garcetti. I'm the lead prosecutor. We're winning that trial. I'm not even a lawyer. That's how easy it was. But I know how they lost because Gil Garcetti knew too much. He's seen so many cases where the defendant was convicted with much less evidence. So he was thinking, we got this guy. We don't need to have a trial near Brentwood in Santa Monica. Fuck it. We're going downtown with this. Mark Furman's a racist? Put him on the stand. Fuck it. Right? You can see him. You can see him. He's like, eh, we got this. Mark Furman. Called to the stand. Oh, we know he's a racist. It's fine. We got this. We all know that you can't wear fitted leather gloves over latex gloves. You can't even put them on. They won't fit. No one would think that that would fit. Anyone that wears fitted driving gloves, and I do, I wear fitted leather driving gloves because that's, I don't let my bare hands touch a cold steering wheel. Never. Oh my God. Never. Ever. Okay. Ever. So I know fitted leather gloves, and they were extra large. And I know fitted leather gloves that you would get at a Neiman Marcus don't come in sizes larger than extra large. So of course those were his gloves. But you can't ask him to try on the gloves over latex gloves. Of course they're not going to fit. But these prosecutors asked OJ to try the gloves on. What are they doing? See, when this trial was happening, I wasn't listening to every minute of the trial. I just assumed that it was the defense that brought up OJ to try on the gloves. I didn't know it was the prosecution that asked him to put them on. I mean, that was the dumbfounding moment of the entire trial. Like, what are you doing? They were delusional because they had so much evidence. They just, whatever. It's like someone that wins the lottery. They're just spending. They're just giving away $20 bills to anyone that walks up to them. Oh, we got plenty of evidence. It's a devil-may-care attitude. You can't have a devil-may-care attitude with those stakes. And it did remind me of a coach who's up big in the second half. We've seen a game like that where a team was up big in the second half and then a delusional coach is calling plays like he can't lose. Have we seen that before recently, Nate? I do vaguely remember one game pretty recently. Last couple weeks, maybe. Yeah, something like that. Team was up big, couldn't lose, found a way to lose. Yeah, Gil Garcetti is the Kyle Shanahan of prosecutors. <laughs> and I'm telling you all this so you don't have to spend eight hours of your life watching this godforsaken movie. A movie that should have been four hours.
So I'll give you the one interesting nugget that I gleaned from the show. There was one. There was one interesting nugget where I sat up in my chair and I said, oh, that's interesting. Happened one time. And it was a counterfactual regarding Mark Furman. And you know how I love counterfactuals. It's my favorite logic-based debate tactic, the counterfactual. For this not to be true, then these things must be true. That's how we know that Mark Furman could not have planted the glove. That was the crux of the reasonable doubt in the O.J. Simpson trial, was that Mark Furman could have planted the glove. He could not have planted the glove, and here's why. Because in order for Mark Furman to plant the glove and not risk going to jail himself, he would have had to have known with definitive certainty that O.J. Simpson did not have a verifiable alibi the night of the murder. And without that confidence... Essentially, a complete understanding of the events of that night, it would have been suicidal to plant a glove where he did, when he did. Are you there, Nate? Are you there? Are you listening to the show? I am. I don't know what you want me to say to this. Do you have any thoughts? The O.J. Simpson trial, do you remember it? Anything you can add? I vaguely... It was a pretty important event in the history of the United States. Race relations in this country, well, that sports and society collide. That's a little big. That's a little big. It's building it up a bit much. I will say this, though. Anything for us, Nate? Yeah, I appreciate that I don't have to watch it because I don't want to fall asleep. I fall asleep watching Marvel movies. Those are supposed to keep you awake. So I appreciate that I will no longer have to waste my time because I got the run of the film from you. You do not have to watch this movie now. I gave you the most interesting nugget. I summarized the whole thing. <laughs> Just know that I would have won that trial. I like how you weave Kyle Shanahan into it. That was that was impressive. Gil Garcetti's the Kyle Shanahan of prosecutors, and Kyle Shanahan's the Gil Garcetti of offensive coordinators. Kyle Shanahan just walked right into a starting head coaching job, too. Blew it. New job. Oh, I'm sure Gil Garcetti got promoted after that somehow, some way. <laughs> right. I'm right. sure. That's the parallel. It's the only way. Tank job. So there were occasions when Nate simply checked out on the show, and that often led to him not getting equal credit as a show host. And that was the best way to agitate Nate List last season. Were you invited to that league, Nate? I see where this is going, Matt, and I don't really know if I want to respond to this. Uh, you know, if we're being totally honest, no, I was not invited to that league or any podcast leagues at all. Have you ever been invited to a fantasy football expert league? Nope, not yet. Hmm, okay. Hmm. Well, your time is going to come. I'm sure you'll be invited to an expert league at some point. I'm sure if someone's running a dynasty league podcasters league that they will think of you next time certainly the members of this audience appreciate you even if the elders the elder statesmen of the dynasty league community do not appreciate you we know the listeners of this show appreciate you right yeah they have to there's no way that they can't appreciate the fire that i come under every week and try and battle back against you know the the dragon that is matt kelly on here to provide awesome content for these people i'd be surprised if there weren't crazy reviews about me on itunes i've got to be a part of that we haven't talked about the itunes reviews lately our itunes reviews are strong i was just looking at it yesterday 284 five-star reviews <laughs> 
If you haven't reviewed the show on iTunes, please go to iTunes and review the show. Give us whatever you want. If you like the show, give us five stars. If you hate the show, give us one star. Just review the show on iTunes, please, everybody. So let's see what these fans of Nate Liss had to say on iTunes. I'm excited. Let's do it. Donnie Hamilton writes, you're killing it, Matt. I'm launching a fantasy football podcast in March, and I hope to be half as good as you, man. Hmm. I'm not much of an analytics guy, but you deliver it with extraordinary vigor and levity every time. So I signed up for Player Profiler a month ago, and it's my favorite tool. Keep up the great work, Matt. Hmm. So that was just one review. I'm sure the next one will mention you. That's nothing. Killer podcast for all types of fantasy football by Fish Drums, March 2nd. I have to admit that it took me a few episodes to get into the vibe of the show, but I'm definitely hooked now. Awesome info put in a way that's highly entertaining and engaging and makes you think. Matt doesn't want you to get the warm and fuzzy analysis. He wants you to get the truth, and sometimes it's straight fire with a side shot of Jeff Janis. It's worth your time. Okay, so it could be a coincidence. That's just two. It's fine. Let's go to the third. I'm sure in this next review, they will mention your excellence, Nate. Don't worry. Let's get into it. Let's read this one. Mr. Nice Guy FF writes, Undoubtedly the most entertaining and analytically driven Dynasty show available. New shows are always popping up, and yet Matt finds a way to maintain consistency. Great audio quality. The Sonic Truth Podcast. Always an easy choice. So nice. Mr. Nice Guy. Huh. So three in a row. Not not a mention. Let's go. The, let's just go the fourth. Whatever. Three in a row. We're getting a bit of a pattern starting here. Let's break it. Matt Kelly, a.k.a. the Podfather, has a distinct brand that may take some time to get used to. But once you understand his style and then it stems from an extreme passion, you won't be able to get enough. He doesn't waste time on filler discussions, yet somehow remains entertaining with each episode. Many times, 100% by himself. That, that's that's probably about one of your other podcasts. That that can't be about us. I'm, I'm assuming that most of these have been, or these people might think that we're the same voice. I don't know. I don't know what's going on right now. Let's go to another one. This is from Kid Kingdom. I listen to a ton of Dynasty podcasts. All day I'm consuming content. But your show is by far the best and most entertaining show I've found. The content is incredible, and I find myself agreeing with everything you're saying. And you're also charismatic, so it doesn't get mundane. I love it. Thanks for putting it out there for everyone, Matt and company. Okay, okay, okay. All right, hold on. Let's just, let's just, let's just, let's just relax for a second here. So, they know Matt. Did I just get referred to as company? <laughs> so that's five, five iTunes reviews, and the fifth one... And I'm keeping track here. I think three dynasty reviews at least. The fifth one calls me company as if there's more than two people that are doing this podcast. There's two guys. My name comes first when we do the intro. But I get called company. That's fine. That's that's fine. I appreciate you kid kingdom or whatever your name is. Matt is killing it. Matt doesn't give the warm and fuzzy analysis. All hail the pod father. Jesus. <laughs> I love it when Matt gets excited. Matt, Podfather, Matt, Podfather, Matt, Podfather. No mention of Nate whatsoever on iTunes, except the vague reference to and company. Your and company. <laughs> Right? It feels like the Dave Matthews band. 
I don't understand. I'm on every episode, okay? <laughs> Jesus. You know, this is why we talked about this on season one. This is why I stopped looking at the iTunes reviews. Because number one, you got people with bad takes giving us one star. I know you said, hey, just rate us. Give us five stars. Give us one star. Look, we don't want one star. We, we want more than that. We hope, to, we hope to be greater than that. But the real thing that pisses me off is that I'm on here all the time with Matt doing podcasts, just getting fucking rained on with fire from the sky, napalm, all episode, all episode, five reviews, and the only thing that even alludes to the fact that there might be another guy doing a podcast with Matt Kelly is an and company. Jesus. Ah, ah, ah. This made my day, man. That was... Oh, this is unbelievable. A vague reference that alludes to your presence. <laughs> this is so bitter right now, and I don't even understand. I, this is this is why I don't go to iTunes, okay? This is the shit that I was talking about. You told me to stay off of it. I don't know why we reopened this wound. We were supposed to leave iTunes alone. Why do we even go here? Why? It was my idea. It's my fault. I didn't realize that they were just going to render you one of the out-of-focus guys in the band. It's such a bad idea. We shouldn't have done this in the first place. That's going to set the tone for the rest of my day. And company. Are you kidding me? I could have swore a handful of these read Matt and Nate. But when I'm reading them again, it, it just says Matt. <laughs> Hey, people, you might remember me from the line. And you can find me on Twitter at an outraged Jew. I'm your host, Nate Liss. Are you kidding me? I'm in the title. The first 19 seconds of the episode has my name. <laughs> Nothing. And company. That's great. That's great. I mean, you know what? I'm going to leave an iTunes review. Oh, I'm going to add one to that because I don't know if I have one on there yet. I'm going to drop my name. Best Dynasty Podcast by Brennan. This podcast provides great entertainment and unique Dynasty content. Here we go. No better Dynasty football podcast exists. I credit this podcast for winning multiple championships. Thanks, Matt! Exclamation point. I hope Brennan eats a bad plate of Chinese food. <laughs> Gets stuck in traffic on the freeway. <laughs> oh, this is... Great. Thanks, Brennan. This is too good. This is like 21 right now. Hit me. Read another. I feel bad. There's no more. There's no more. There's some from last year, but these are the ones from this year, and, and you're not mentioned at all. And I feel bad that I opened this Pandora's box of highly complimentary content for myself that also seems to erase your presence from the history books. It's so unbelievable. <laughs> it's as if I was never there. It's really... Really what pisses me off the most. I don't quite understand it myself. I'm here every week. Oh, no, no, it's there. Historians will have to dig. But they will wonder who is the and company that they're referring to in this one comment. Right? Doesn't that make it feel like it's more than two people? It's just... Thanks, Matt and his shadow. <laughs> Couldn't be bothered to distinguish whether or not there were more than one co-host. Just... Just and company, that should take care of it. That'll suffice. That'll cover everyone, even though it's just one other guy, Nate Liss. <laughs> <laughs>
Nate and I had some particularly strong takes in 2017, like the Juju Smith-Schuster Mike Williams trading places take. What if Juju Smith-Schuster went to Clemson and Mike Williams went to USC? Then what? Oof. Well, first off, I think we'd have to deal with the uh, USC wide receivers are all busts, and then all Mike Williams are all busts in the NFL as well. Okay, here, here's the thing. I've been thinking about these two guys in particular. Um, so Mike Williams just did his pro day. I don't think we talked about that on the last episode. Maybe that was the day of the last episode. No, we did talk about it on the last episode. Okay, we did. It's been a long day. I corrected myself there. But yeah, okay. So he had he had a decent God, day. you're bad. You're a pin. Hold, please. This is going to be a bad show. I can already <laughs> tell. You almost derailed your own apology, and now you can't remember things we talked about on the last show so that you can build on previous points. Okay. Go so, ahead. Just go ahead. Go. Just start talking. Ooh, do, I'm going to try. Do the thing where you talk into a microphone, I guess. Right here. Here's where it's happening. You know, if Mike Williams hadn't had such a significant injury the year prior in 2015 where he missed nearly the whole season, we may have a different opinion about him. He may have had back-to-back 90 reception seasons. It's entirely possible. However, if we look at Juju Smith, Going to Clemson, there's a very different situation. A lot of people talk about Juju Smith and want to talk about his decline in 2016 versus 2015 when he had such a great year. He's still young by comparison. He's two full years younger than Mike Williams, number one. Number two, Juju Smith had his career best year with Cody Kessler when he was a sophomore. But what's important to note is that Juju got to play with Kessler as a freshman also and had a pretty decent year. 54 catches, 724 yards, five touchdowns. As a freshman, a true freshman, an 18-year-old freshman. As a true freshman. But then as an 18-year-old sophomore, he continues that continuity and rapport with Kessler and goes on to post this incredible season, which most people know if you've looked at the stats, 89 catches, 1,454 yards, 10 touchdowns. Then in 2016, he loses Kessler and starts all over again with Sam Darnold, a freshman quarterback, and a team that is spreading the ball around a ton more than they did the year prior. So this is the year that they have in 2016. Juju Smith is one of three receivers that rank inside the top 11 in receptions in the Pac-12. You had Darius Rogers and Deontay Burnett. So three guys in the top 11 for receptions in 2016. You go back to 2015, Juju Smith ranked second in the Pac-12, and they had nobody else in the top 11. The next closest receiver from Southern Cal was number 33 overall in receptions in the Pac-12. So if you now go over to the Mike Williams side of it, he had Deshaun Watson possibly essentially from 2014 all the way to 2016. So if you're talking about continuity, Mike Williams had this injury, and this is what I'm going back to. If he was healthy in 2015, he may have had a monster year in his second year with Deshaun Watson. Because despite the fact that Deshaun Watson's turnover rate is pretty is pretty gigantic, if you go and look at his numbers, even with half a season as a quarterback starting for Clemson, Watson from that year as a freshman to this year through 90 touchdowns, the whole USC starting quarterbacks from that same period of time through 99. So it's a difference of nine touchdowns, and Watson played half a year as a freshman. So if you're asking me if Juju Smith, a young stud wide receiver, would have done even better with Deshaun Watson throwing him the ball for three years 
My answer would be yes, absolutely. So, again, I think Mike Williams' injury hurt him in the numbers that we look at. But if Juju Smith would have had that continuity, that opportunity with a quarterback that's throwing 38, 41 touchdowns in a year, I think what we're looking at from Juju Smith would be significantly higher. Looking at playerprofile.com, Juju Smith-Schuster's best comparable player is DeAndre Hopkins, and Mike Williams' best comparable is Josh Gordon. Both exceptional NFL receivers, at least for one season, in the case of Josh Gordon. And the reason we comp Mike Williams to Josh Gordon and Juju Smith-Schuster to DeAndre Hopkins is because we can't comp rookies to one another. Generally speaking, we don't do that. One time we did it because the comparison was so close, such close comps, we were compelled to do it. We compared Brashad Perriman to Kevin White and Kevin White to Brashad Perriman because those two are, in fact, doppelgangers. Well, Mike Williams and Juju Smith-Schuster are quantitatively very similar players. You look at their measurables, similar 40 time, similar burst. You look at their production, Juju Smith-Schuster broke out a year earlier, and his dominator was slightly higher than Mike Williams, but Mike Williams had a higher yards per reception. These look like very similar players, but because Juju Smith-Schuster lacks the wow factor catches in primetime broadcasts, he's not a first-round graded player. Mike Williams is. Juju Smith-Schuster does himself no favors at the Combine, 115.3 burst score, 22nd percentile. So if he had a great broad jump and vertical jump, there would be more buzz right now about Juju, but there's not. For Mike Williams, his burst was equally lackluster, and yet no one is questioning, you included, Mike Williams' first round grade, which is consensus. It's unanimous. There's only one objector out there, and his name is Matt Kelly, objecting to Mike Williams being drafted in the first round. Not because I don't think Mike Williams is a top three receiver. He is. It's because the position is so weak this year. The best receivers from Western Michigan. Let me say that again. The best receiver in this class went to Western Michigan, a non-Power 5 conference school. That right there is a huge red flag for this class. If I'm an NFL general manager, I'm not picking any of these wide receivers in the first round. But that's not how NFL GMs evaluate talent. They put the players in tiers regardless of the depth of talent for each position. That's how you get Jordan Matthews and Allen Robinson falling into the second round in 2014, which was irrational. And that's how you're going to get Mike Williams and Corey Davis drafted in the first round this year, equally irrational. To be fair, Matt, the best receiver in the NFL came from Central Michigan. So I think that the Mike Williams thing, I the more I watch him, I still think Mike Williams is a first-round talent, and we're going to disagree here all day. That's fine. And I understand what your take is on on this receiver class, so you still believe he's a top-three talent at the position. You just think the position's— You understand this concept, right? The, the notion of relative value for an entire positional cohort is incredibly low at the wide receiver position, and yet— NFL teams always have this quota of wide receivers that they have to draft in the first round, regardless of the talent profile of the positional cohort. You understand why that's irrational, right? I do. If you watch these guys on film, you do see special things. And again, we go back to this thing where me watching it is probably more subjective than Fusu Vu watching it. But 
when I watch Mike Williams, there's an abundance of talent there. And do I think that Mike Williams is going to be a Des Bryant-like talent transcending on the field? No, not necessarily. I think that Corey Davis is. No, no, no. There's no necessarily about it. The answer is flat no, because Des Bryant was one of the great college producers of all time, one of the highest dominator ratings in the playerprofiler.com database. Mike Williams posted a 27% dominator rating. That's 39th percentile, Nate. We don't disagree. 39th percentile. We don't disagree that he's not going to be Des Bryant. I didn't mean to bring up Des Bryant because of his production. I'm just sick of all these best-case scenario comps. Late March and throughout the month of April, all I hear all day are best-case scenario comps, and it's maddening. It's just Mike Williams is a really good player, and whether you think that he's an early second round or I think he's a mid-first round, that's fine. I still think Corey Davis is the best receiver in this class, but... There's nothing yeah. wrong. Our our differences in opinion are about 15 picks apart, 30, you know, 20 picks apart. That's fine. If if he goes where Laquan Treadwell went, where DeAndre Hopkins went, where these guys went in the the early 20s, 23, 24, 25, I'd be fine with it. I'm seeing Mike Williams go at eight, at seven, at ten. I don't think that's right. I think Corey Davis is the best receiver in the class. <laughs> So for what it's worth, we're we're always gonna have. You do understand though that Corey Davis has no business in the top ten as well, right? Sure, I don't think that Corey Davis should be up there that high. Anyways, we agree. If you're looking at best okay. player available, I totally agree. But Corey Davis is a better receiver than Mike Williams. And Antonio Brown and Doug Baldwin. Antonio Brown has come up a lot on the show because you know I love Antonio Brown. If Antonio Brown were tethered to Marcus Mariota or Andrew Locke or Russell Wilson, I think we would look up in 10 years and realize, oh my God, Antonio Brown is better than Jerry Rice. I think we devoted an entire show last season to talking about why the Dynasty League community simply does not fully appreciate Antonio Brown because so many are not discerning when it comes to projecting how players will age. But the issue now is Ben Roethlisberger's imminent retirement. A year ago, we didn't know that Ben Roethlisberger's time in the league would be cut short. Now, that looks to be the case. And why is that a problem? Well, we saw what happened to Des Bryant last year after losing Tony Romo, and Dak Prescott was as good as anyone could have hoped for in a Tony Romo replacement, and still, Des Bryant's fantasy output cratered last season. So given that, I thought it would be interesting to propose a trade, a hypothetical scenario where you would trade Antonio Brown and not trade him for another elite receiver in the top 10. No. Lateral trades are the equivalent of the jerk-off motion. <laughs> I just don't do them. I don't consider them. I don't think about them. Never. So if we're not going to talk about swapping just a top 10 player for a top 10 player, we're not talking about trading Antonio Brown for Amari Cooper or Antonio Brown for Odell Beckham Jr. If you can't do that, how would you go about constructing a fair exchange for Antonio Brown? This is a fun thought experiment. Is it not? It is. It's really interesting because Antonio Brown is one of few players in this league that, you know, you and I both agree could be playing six years from now and still be awesome as productive. Awesome. I love Antonio Brown. But because I love Antonio Brown and many others have an emotional attachment to Antonio Brown as I do, it becomes complicated to discuss Antonio Brown trades even in the hypothetical because Antonio Brown's zealots in fantasy football 
simply do not believe that you should ever trade Antonio Brown unless you're getting back Odell Beckham Jr. or Mike Evans. So this hypothetical scenario is a non-starter for a lot of people, and I get it. In most cases, it would be a non-starter for me as well, because I almost always demand that I get the best player in any transaction. But there have been a handful of occasions in the past where my entire Dynasty League roster crumbled around a single player. So a few years back, I had Julio Jones, and that was about it. It was a two-quarterback league. I ended up trading Julio Jones for Marcus Mariota, David Johnson, Golden Tate, a first-round pick that became Carson Wentz, that became Terrell Pryor. So the trade ended up being something close to Julio Jones for Mariota, David Johnson, Terrell Pryor, Golden Tate. So that one trade allowed me to essentially rebuild my roster and be competitive instead of tanking on purpose and going through this elongated rebuilding process. So in certain situations, it makes sense to trade a centerpiece wide receiver in Dynasty. Again, most of my rosters are ready to win now, so I would never consider trading Antonio Brown. But in some situations, it could make sense. Now, I haven't done it because I have an irrational affinity for Antonio Brown. But unlike UTH who was advocating trading him last year for Kevin White and picks. Do you remember that? (laughs) Do you remember that? Yes. Kevin White's still going to hit. I would never do that. Again, because I'm discerning about how players age, and I believe Antonio Brown will be productive into his mid to late 30s. But on this Roto Underworld podcast with Ben Cummins, we were brainstorming, and we constructed what we thought was the bare minimum that would be required in an Antonio Brown exchange? What's the bare minimum that you think would be fair? And Chris Whitman from the Dynasty League Happy Hour podcast posted a poll with this hypothetical deal, and the voting came back 50-50, which is all you can hope for. So the deal was Antonio Brown for Doug Baldwin, a 2018 first rounder. It would have to be early to make sense. And then two undervalued top 24 Dynasty running backs think C.J. Procise, Amir Abdullah, Isaiah Crowell, Ty Montgomery, Duke Johnson, Bilal Powell. Pretty much multiple backs anywhere from Derrick Henry to Theo Riddick on our rankings. Go to our rankings, playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings. You can see where we have all the running backs ranked. And there's a bunch of running backs in that 10 to 20 zone that we're higher on than many others. And some people might think about that trade and go, no, you can't do that. Some of the running backs you just listed, Duke Johnson, Bilal Powell, those are replacement level guys. And I would respond, no, 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 no. All the running backs I listed are grossly undervalued right now, which is why they were in the hypothetical trade. And none of this would even be a discussion if Ben Roethlisberger was not on the verge of retirement. That was the impetus for this discussion, this intellectual exercise. Because look at what happened to Demarius Thomas when Peyton Manning's play dramatically deteriorated. That was two years ago. Two years ago, Demarius Thomas and Antonio Brown had a similar dynasty ADP. Do you remember those days, Nate? Yeah, I do remember those days. So Antonio Brown was the impetus for the thought experiment. But then as we started talking about this hypothetical trade, it ceased being about Antonio Brown. That was what was so fascinating to me. It became more about Doug Baldwin. 
And it became more about the larger concept of brand equity in Dynasty League football. But as what so often happens with the discussions that we have on this show, the listeners chose to focus on the specific players we listed off the cuff on the broadcast. You can't trade Antonio Brown for Doug Baldwin and a pick and a bunch of guys. Well, forget the players for a second. That's not what's interesting. If you want to see where we have players ranked, check out our rankings. As I mentioned before, playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings. The more interesting conversation is about brand equity and how some players value is propelled by their name. Look at what's happened with Demarius Thomas versus Antonio Brown just in the last two years. In 2015, Demarius Thomas scored 17 fantasy points per game with some of the worst quarterback play we've seen. And yet now we're in a place where no one would think of putting Demarius Thomas and Antonio Brown in the same tier. Antonio Brown's brand equity has only grown from there. He's becoming mythological. We're now in a place where the name Antonio Brown is just such a loaded name. Just like Darius Hayward Bay is a loaded name on the other side of the spectrum. It's now almost impossible to have a rational conversation about either Antonio Brown or Darius Hayward Bay because there's so much love or hate that's built into the names. But when emotion leaks into the equation, that's actually the best time to make a dynasty trade. And my argument was not that you need to get rid of Antonio Brown because now's the time to sell. Now's not the time to sell Antonio Brown. He has eight more productive years left, at least. I wouldn't be surprised if Antonio Brown's playing at age 40. But it's about Doug Baldwin. Now is the time to strike on Doug Baldwin. That's where the conversation led. Because on playerprofiler.com, we have a roll-up metric called quality score. It looks at all the metrics that we have on playerprofiler.com and rolls them all up. One overarching quality score. The score to end all scores. And for veterans like Doug Baldwin and Antonio Brown, that score is primarily determined by the player's target share. What is the target volume that they command in their offense and their efficiency. Do you want to know who the top two players in the NFL are in quality score in the playerprofiler.com database? And by the way, you can get access to the quality scores by subscribing to our data analysis tool. Go to playerprofiler.com forward slash data dash analysis. And there you can download all the players and every metric in the database. Quality score just happens to be available only for premium subscribers that have access to the data analysis tool. Now, who do you believe with the top two wide receivers in the NFL right now on Player Profiler's quality score metric, Nate? I am going to take a wild guess and guess Antonio Brown and Doug Baldwin. Yes! It's not that we hate Antonio Brown. It's that Doug Baldwin is criminally undervalued in Dynasty right now. And he's younger than Antonio Brown. And he has a stable quarterback situation for the remainder of his career. Doug Baldwin has less risk. And you could argue has similar upside as well because it wasn't that long ago, the second half of 2015, that Doug Baldwin was the number one wide receiver in all of fantasy. Yet for some reason, 
he still utterly lacks brand equity. When presented with that hypothetical trade that I laid out for you, most people just reflex reaction say, oh, give me the Antonio Brown side. Because they're looking at the name and that Antonio Brown name is just so charged with positive feelings. But for some reason, the Doug Baldwin name is neutral. It doesn't inspire any positive feelings. Even though he's number two in our database in quality score. Has been an exceptional wide receiver the last two years. Just like Antonio Brown. And he projects to take another step forward this season. Where last year, we already saw Antonio Brown start to take a step backward. What do you think of that trade, Nate? There's a lot of projections that have to go into this trade. It's one of the biggest factors of it. And it works in a couple places. One for Antonio Brown, you have to talk about Ben Roethlisberger just like you did. How many years does he have Roethlisberger left with him? Because when we've seen Vic back there and other quarterbacks, Antonio Brown disappears at times. And and that can really hurt his value. We've seen good receivers in this league not have success because of poor quarterback play. So that's a big deal for Antonio Brown, number one. Right. Antonio Brown, like Jerry Rice, needs his Steve Young for the second half of his career. He may get it. Des Bryant got Dak Prescott. But even with Dak Prescott, Des Bryant was not the wide receiver one we had been accustomed to. So that's a big if. Will the Steelers somehow find Ben Roethlisberger's one-for-one replacement? It's a tough ask. Yeah, and it's probably going to have to be a veteran quarterback. And not to get into this, I heard a statistic about the hit rate on quarterbacks, and it's like 38% when drafting rookies. So it's a long shot without bringing in somebody. But here's the deal. The other part of the projection is, what about these running backs that you brought up? The CJ Procise, the Amir Abdullah. I really like Derrick Henry. Derrick Henry has the upside of potentially a top five, top eight running back in this league. So if you get a guy like that out of this deal, like the trade you talked about earlier where you netted David Johnson and other players that obviously at the time were being undervalued. Right. And when they hit, they hit so significantly that it outweighs everything. Well, look at that trade I did before, right? Just take David Johnson out of it. In a two-quarterback league, Marcus Mariota is drafted within 10 slots in startups of Antonio Brown and Julio Jones. Then you add Terrell Pryor, you add Golden Tate, a fair deal, even without David Johnson. That doesn't mean I would do it, just like the trade I outlined with Ben Cummins. Not necessarily a trade I would do, but it's a thought experiment trying to find the trade that would be considered fair if you're not including a wide receiver in the exchange on the other side that is viewed as a tier one wide receiver. Most people do not view Doug Baldwin as a tier one wide receiver. That's why the trade was interesting to me, because I think the way you would trade Antonio Brown without tanking, like UTH would advocate for, is to get another super productive and efficient wide receiver in his prime in exchange whose brand equity is a fraction of Antonio Brown's brand equity, and then you can add these other assets on top that could potentially pop in the future like David Johnson did for me a couple years ago. There's not a significant drop-off between Doug Baldwin and Antonio Brown. It's not as significant. What? No! (laughs) They're in different tiers, Nate! The, the, The tiers! The tiers! Antonio Brown's in tier one! Doug Baldwin's in Tier 2. No, you can't combine the tiers. Doug Baldwin will never be a Tier 1 wide receiver. Never. Never. (laughs) Blasphemy. How dare you 
call Doug Baldwin a tier one wide receiver. He's uh, Doug fucking Baldwin. He's just a guy. <laughs> so out of control. And we were feeling Adam Thielen. Do you know what peak end effect is? I was here for the last episode. Of course I know what peak end effect is. Well, go ahead and tell the audience what peak end effect is. Why don't you tell the people what peak end effect is? Oh, here we go. Yes, look at this, this weasel. Look at him. Look at him squirm. We've got him. We've got him, members of the Sonic Truth audience. We have him pinned down and cornered. It's almost like a snake. The snake is caught between the teeth of the pitchfork. He's pinned to the ground. He can't escape. He now knows that we know that he did zero show prep again and doesn't even know the definition of the first concept on the show sheet because, of course, he doesn't because it's Nate Liss. (laughs) Why would anyone expect him to be prepared or have any idea what we're going to talk about one week to the next? So peak end effect is as follows. The human brain remembers... The final experience in a string of experiences more vividly. So, for example, you hike a mountain. You're going to remember the end of the hike where you're exhausted and sweaty and you feel broken more than you will remember the middle when you were standing on top of the mountain and feeling euphoric. When you think back to that hike, you're going to think back to how miserable you felt as you were getting back into the car. Now, psychologists actually measured this And you'll appreciate this with rectal exams, colonoscopies. Go on. So what they did was at the end of some colonoscopies, they kept the scope in longer, but they didn't move it around. In fact, they tried to rest it in the least invasive position. So for a handful of subjects, the end of the colonoscopy was almost painless. And for others, they just pulled the thing out suddenly. So... Both sets of patients experienced the same amount of discomfort up until a point, and then it ended for some, but then it continued in a more mild form for others. So those that were in the group with the extra mild experience experienced more total discomfort. However, they also reported a much better experience. So those with more total discomfort in the experience enjoyed it more. It's counterintuitive. I mean, there's very little in the world more counterintuitive than that. But that's what peak end effect is. The final segment of an experience overrides all of the sensations that occurred throughout the experience. And in fantasy football, we've seen this. We've seen players overdrafted. Why? Great Super Bowl performances. Great end of season runs. Players that carry your team to a fantasy football championship by excelling in weeks 14, 15, and 16. This is the C.J. Anderson corollary, where C.J. Anderson is thrust into a starting job in 2014, and then he's the number one back in fantasy football for the final eight weeks, and everyone that picked up C.J. Anderson on the waiver wire wins the championship. And for years, that feeling reverberates as C.J. Anderson is overdrafted because the perception of his ability is inflated by peak end effect. So it would make sense that Adam Thielen would be touted by every fantasy analyst. You would think that he would be on everyone's list of must-have value receivers, so much so that he rises up draft boards. Why? Because 
In Week 16, Fantasy Football Super Bowl for most leagues, Adam Thielen was the number one wide receiver. Anyone that started Adam Thielen won the championship. He scored 44.6 fantasy points on 202 yards and two touchdowns. But here's my theory explaining why Adam Thielen is not enjoying peak end effect heading into 2017. Want to render a guess? Hmm. Because he plays for the Minnesota Vikings and Stephon Diggs plays there? Because no one had him in the lineup. Hmm. No one actually won their league with Adam Thielen. Why? Because in the previous game against Indianapolis, zero points. 0.0 points. Zero yards. Zero touchdowns on one target. Adam Thielen was benched in every league in week 16 in 2016. Why? Recency bias. Recency bias rendered Adam Thielen's peak end effect null and void. (laughs) Explosion sound. It's a really good point. I mean, I guess I never thought about it from from that actual point of view, that if you didn't start him, you might not have remembered it as well as somebody who did start him. And I don't know that anybody started Adam Thielen. I'm sure someone did. There's enough people out there playing. If he's on your bench, you don't remember it. In fact, if anything, you were bitter about it. Yeah, and Adam Thielen last year had a great year. I mean, I think most people by this point, especially people that listen to your show, are well aware of it. But 69 receptions on 92 targets, 14 yards per reception. How many receptions? 69. Matt, let's be adult about this. Let's be adults about this. (laughs) Adam Thielen is one of the great values in fantasy football dynasty leagues because he just turned 27 so he has three more years left of his prime age 27 age 28 and age 29 seasons yet to go and adam thielen was the poster child for trutherism in fantasy football you had to hold on to him for four plus years before he finally broke out in 2016 but the signs were there College dominator, 45.9%, 90th percentile, above average college yards per reception, above average breakout age, and across the board, good, not great metrics. But because he's big, 6'3", 200 pounds, his best workout metric is his catch radius, 1009, 66th percentile. And none of his workout metrics fall below the 43rd percentile. So Adam Thielen, as it turns out, has been hashtag good at football all along. And he's best comparable to Eric Decker, which makes a lot of sense. Eric Decker's from Minnesota, and he's 6'3", 200, and he's white. Adam Thielen, from Minnesota, 6'3", 200, and he's white. And Adam Thielen was also the most efficient wide receiver in the NFL last year. Did you know that? Did you know that Adam Thielen was the most efficient wide receiver in the NFL last season? I did not know that, Matt. I was unaware. And it actually wasn't close, because his production premium, which measures... Adam Thielen's contribution on any given down and distance above or below expectation, plus 30.0, top three, plus 34.8 target premium, which is his per target production compared to the other receivers in that Minnesota Vikings passing game. That was fourth in the league. His yards per target, 10.5, fourth in the league. Catch rate, 75%, fifth in the league. 
Drop rate 1.1%. He only dropped one pass all year, and he caught 83% of his contested targets. So all Adam Thielen did was make plays when targeted last season. This is what you want in Dynasty. In Dynasty, we buy efficiency. So if a player was hugely efficient last year, that's a great indicator that he's good at football, and you just want to collect players on your Dynasty League team that are hashtag good at football and let the rest take care of itself. Let the schedule take care of itself. Let the game script take care of itself. Let the supporting cast take care of itself. Let all those external forces work themselves out over time. Over the next three years, what you care about, is this player good at football? He has the 90th percentile college dominator and exceptional on-field efficiency at the professional level in a season in which he commanded 92 targets. So we know he's good. We know it. It goes all the way back to college. That's how certain we are. So those are the players you should be targeting, particularly the ones that are at the age apex or younger. Willie Sneed is a younger version of Adam Thielen on a prolific offense. But Adam Thielen is also much less expensive to acquire in Dynasty Leagues than Willie Sneed. But I would argue that Adam Thielen's a better buy, a better bargain, a better value. I understand in redraft, you want to identify the most efficient players from the previous year. And oftentimes, avoid them in redraft leagues because they're destined to be overvalued because of recency bias the following season and experience a negative regression because no player can be the most efficient for consecutive seasons. That's nearly impossible. Contact the show at Roto Underworld at Sonic Truth Pod. Who was the last running back or wide receiver to be the most efficient in the league for two consecutive seasons? You just never see it. But with a guy like Adam Thielen, you buy the efficiency in Dynasty because what we care about is the fact that he's simply good at football. And the Minnesota Vikings are now telling you this with their depth chart assignments. They've assigned Adam Thielen the number one slot on the team's official depth chart, even ahead of Stephon Diggs. Do I think Stephon Diggs is going to outscore Adam Thielen this year? Of course. I love Stephon Diggs. Stephon Diggs is a better player than Adam Thielen in every way. But Adam Thielen could absolutely be the 1B to Stephon Diggs 1A on a team that's going to be experiencing a positive reversion in strength of schedule and consequently game script. So I think the Minnesota Vikings are going to be a more productive and efficient offense. And because of that, I think Adam Thielen's arrow is pointing up across the board. And yet, because no one started him in Week 16 last year, there's no irrational exuberance around Adam Thielen. You have a couple more weeks to go get him in Dynasty Leagues. It was one psychological concept after another on the Sonic Truth podcast. And then we went full historical, killing William Kemmler in order to hype Joe Mixon. Joe Mixon checks all the boxes unless you believe character can be measured and should be a box that needs to be checked. Yeah, if uh, Joe Mixon's character box was something that you had to check, um, it would not have a check in it when you were done looking at him. He's got some off-field stuff, and he's a polarizing figure right now in the NFL draft. I think a lot of people that wear their emotions on their sleeve would have preferred that Joe Mixon 
had the crappiest day ever at his pro day. But unfortunately for them, Joe Mixon had a phenomenal day. And so rather than him falling in the draft where I think they feel like he deserves to be, Joe Mixon elevated himself to a point now where it's a question of whether or not somebody would be willing to take him in the first round, but he likely doesn't get out of the second. But do we have a character measurement system? Not to my knowledge. Can we look into a player's heart and know if they're a good person? No, not at all. Do we know which players have punched women throughout their lives? Only the ones that have police records and videos. Exactly. We don't have a character measurement system. And when we talk about evaluating players on this show, we talk about the things that we can measure. If we have empirical evidence that suggests that player X is the best size-adjusted athlete and was a dominant college player, then he's quantitatively great. I can't throttle his greatness based on some character factor that I can't measure. But when I read my Twitter timeline, I see fantasy football analysts lamenting Joe Mixon's presence in the NFL draft, lamenting Joe Mixon's presence in their dynasty rookie drafts and mocks. Talking about Joe Mixon as if they are an arbiter of a man's character. I don't have a character measurement system. And I can't quantify character risk. But sports analysts seem to have this ability. You see this every day on football Twitter. The easy stances condemning Joe Mixon. Domestic abuse should be punished. You think? The easy stance that Joe Mixon needs to pay a penance for his crime no really the bad guys should be punished victims should receive justice you think so what's your solution how do you want these victims to receive their justice because the criminal justice system failed the victim in the case of joe mixon as the criminal justice system often fails the victim of domestic violence what is your recourse easy stance guy on Twitter. Would you like to empower Roger Goodell? Is that the solution? Would you like Roger Goodell to be empowered to give lifetime bans based on what he sees on restaurant security footage? Because that won't be controversial. Roger Goodell handing out lifetime bans, that's going to go really well. That Ray Rice situation handled flawlessly. So what are you going to do, Twitter moralizer? What's your solution? You're going to volunteer to be a martyr and pass on Joe Mixon in your fantasy football dynasty rookie draft? Really? You're going to go to the outer limits of nobility and intentionally degrade your fantasy football team to demonstrate your moral conviction. Get over yourself. We analyze a game that's a proxy for another game! Your easy stance tweets about Joe Mixon help exactly no one. They are self-serving and self-serving only. Do you actually want to make a difference and not grandstand on social media? If you're actually interested in making a difference in the lives of domestic abuse victims, I know how to do it. If you're actually interested, you should advocate for laws making it easier to obtain restraining orders as well as making it more punitive when individuals violate restraining orders. Because there are advocacy groups out there that you could join and become an active member of and actually make a difference if you genuinely care about this problem. Because it is a problem. 
because our criminal justice system more often than not fails victims of domestic abuse. As a society, we do an awful job arresting and litigating domestic abusers. And your fantasy football message board post is helping exactly no one. If you're truly passionate about this issue, help to reform the criminal justice system to better protect victims of domestic violence. Otherwise, you're just arbitrarily picking out Joe Mixon for a scarlet letter because he's famous. And you feel inconvenienced that you have to read his name in pixels on your computer screen when you're looking at Dynasty League rosters. Aww, that stinks for you. You have to look at his name and he's a bad guy. You should tweet about it. Such an imposition on you. But you want justice. Justice for whom, though? Do you even know the name of the woman that was punched by Joe Mixon? How many of you who are outraged that Joe Mixon is going to be allowed to play football? The sacrosanct profession in our society. It's not like they're giving Joe Mixon a medical license. Any additional punishment of Joe Mixon at this point would be considered vigilanteism. Because that's what vigilanteism is. When you punish an individual beyond what law enforcement is capable of, then you're a vigilante. And vigilanteism in and of itself is immoral. So let me get this straight. The Twitter moralists are advocating for immorality as an answer to the immorality. And who would you like to carry out this justice? You want to deputize Roger Goodell? Yeah, he's a great candidate to be your sports vigilante, isn't he? Great track record. Fantasy football is a hobby. We're here to have fun. We're here to distract away from some of the more serious aspects of our lives. And what we're here to do is to provide an outlet for people that's not serious. It's one of the great values of recreation. Recreation extends people's lives, not just because it gives them activity, but it is also a mental stress relief. That's why we're here. And what we do on this show is clinical analysis of a game that's a proxy of another game. Very rarely do we take any of this seriously. And all of us that enjoy football and fantasy football are already compromised morally. This is not the priesthood. We're participating in a blood sport spectacle. We're detached from it because it is a game on top of another game, but the game that it's based on is blood sport. So we're already morally compromised because football destroys lives. Family members of players and the players themselves. Many of their lives are ruined by the sport. I see it. I'm morally compromised already, as is every other person analyzing football. That's what's so maddening to me about these easy stances on Twitter. Because of course we want justice for domestic violence victims. Of course we don't like the bad guys in society. That's not helpful to try to make others that are in this with you, the shared immorality, making them feel bad while making yourself feel better. We're already compromised morally by participating in this spectacle. And there's no place for martyrdom with Joe Mixon. You're going to choose to not draft Joe Mixon even though he's the best player available? You're really going to do that? I can't think of more idiotic platform for martyrdom than a fantasy football league rookie draft. And specifically, the analysts of fantasy football, like Nate and I, we look at fantasy football through a more analytical prism, and we try to clinically analyze each player's capability, their lifetime value. In the late 1800s, 
the country was being wired with electricity. And there was a rivalry between the people at Westinghouse and the people at Edison General Electric. The people at Edison General Electric, they wanted direct current to power the electrical grids around the country. From city to city, they were installing direct current systems. But direct current systems were flawed in that they were inefficient. You had to have an electric generator, a power station on every city block because direct current doesn't travel very far before it loses all of its voltage. However, alternating current is much more efficient, but at the time that it was being developed in the 1800s was more volatile, was difficult to harness. And working with Westinghouse, Nikola Tesla harnessed it, made it a viable solution to wire up a city with alternating current much more efficiently, much more cost effective. And I read a book recently called The Last Days of Night. And it was actually written from the perspective of Westinghouse's lawyer, because Westinghouse and Edison were battling. Who would have the right to power the light bulbs of America? It was from the perspective of Paul Kravath. He's a famous lawyer, founding member of Kravath, Swain, and more. And he was representing Tesla and Westinghouse. And there was an interesting twist along the way in the battle to determine which current would power the electric grids of the United States, a big component was public perception. And someone invented an electric chair powered by alternating current. And this horrified the people at Westinghouse because if a state ended up killing a man using alternating current, it could scare municipalities away from wiring up their city with alternating current and tip the scales toward the direct current advocates. So Paul Kravath, representing Westinghouse, sat in on the very first execution in the United States via electric chair. William Kemmler, an axe murderer from New York, killed his wife with an axe. That's how axe murderers do it. <laughs> and he was going to be the first person killed with an electric chair by the state. Sounds fun, right? Yeah, it sounds like a blast. So Paul Kravath attends the execution, and someone from the Edison camp also attends the execution, gleefully. And there were a bunch of researchers, doctors attending, as well as family members of the victim. And, of course, prison guards, the warden. And they had a direct order from the governor of the state of New York to kill William Kemmler with electricity. But they had never killed a human being with electricity before, so when they first tried to kill him, they failed. They tried again, and they failed because they didn't realize how many volts they needed to get the job done. They tortured this man for minutes, and that's a long time to have electricity running through you. Minutes. Eventually, they had to crank it up a higher voltage than the chair was really equipped for, and it ended up setting the man on fire. It created a mini explosion in his anatomy, and bits of his burning flesh were sprayed around the room. And Paul Kravath and members of the deceased family ran out into the yard and were vomiting. Most people were sick. They were ashen. They witnessed something horrific that they will never be able to undo. They witnessed immorality. And then the doctors came out and they were not vomiting. The doctors were writing down their observations because that's their job. They were there to document the effects of electricity on the human body. That's their job. Our job is to document the capabilities of football players to score fantasy points. That's our job. That's what a fantasy analyst does. 
And the last place where it makes sense to sermonize about social injustices is a fantasy football message board. Our job is not to watch Joe Mixon's pro day and then vomit in the courtyard. Our job is to watch Joe Mixon's 40, his three cone, his 20 yard shuttle, his vertical, his broad jump, write those numbers down, put them in a database and help fantasy gamers determine whether drafting Joe Mixon optimizes the talent of their dynasty league rosters. That's our job. And I would be remiss if I did not remind you how much Nate Liss loved Alvin Kamara last season. Tennessee running back Alvin Kamara spent yesterday visiting the Vikings. And that means nothing. Hmm. No one knows who's drafting Alvin Kamara. Where prospects visit means nothing. Who teams interview means nothing. What reporters like Ian Rappaport say on Twitter before the draft means nothing. Did anyone watch the draft last year? Did anyone think that the Dolphins were going to draft Laramie Tunsil? No, because it was impossible to predict that Laramie Tunsil would be exposed as a gas mask bong hitter. But he was just an example in the extreme of how unpredictable the NFL draft is. So I don't want to engage in a conversation discussing speculation about where players may or may not land. And I certainly don't want to speculate how that possibility could possibly impact the incumbent players on the roster. But certainly, Nate Liss has no problem engaging in those kinds of conversations because he said, well, if Alvin Kamara goes to the Vikings, quote, this would be cold water that puts out the McKinnon camp for good. Fuck out of here. Who the hell are you to say that about Jarek McKinnon? First, you dismiss Jeremy McNichol's accomplishments. Then you extinguish Jarek McKinnon's career. Explain yourself. Explain yourself. I want an explanation. I deserve an explanation. Jarek McKinnon deserves an explanation. And the explanation you gave to Jeremy McNichols and his family was not good enough, by the way. Okay, first off, I would like to uh, revise the quote that Matt gave you. I, I didn't say for good at the end of the McKinnon camp. I like Jarek McKinnon. Nice little addition by Matt Kelly Productions. <laughs> what? Why the Why is that such an important correction? Those final two words you added, those have to be deleted for the record on this podcast. You know why? Because it makes it sound like I hate McKinnon, but I'm going to drop a quote on you. Because you clearly hate McKinnon to write a tweet like that that comes from a place of pure hatred. Here you go. I'm going to give you a, a sentence right here, and you can give me your take on it. The Minnesota Vikings have no allegiance to a converted quarterback from a school we've never heard of that was drafted in the third round three years ago. That's a fact. There is no allegiance to Jarek McKinnon. I love... Why is that a fact? That's not a fact. That's the opposite of a fact. It is a fact. How is it the opposite? You just said something with absolutely no evidence to back it up and then called it a fact. You can't just say anything you want and then add the addendum, that's a fact, to make it a fact. The sky is green. That's a fact. The sky is not green, but plenty of NFL teams three years after drafting a running back in the third round have moved on from him or given a shot to somebody else. There's plenty of reasons why Jerick McKinnon could get surpassed by a guy like Alvin Kamara, especially. Why? I, okay, well, okay. First off. Why? 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 NFL draft prospects usually fail. This is the great flaw in your reasoning, as it often is. 
the assumption that the NFL draft prospect is going to land on a team and inevitably compete with that player and likely supplant him is a flawed assumption because most NFL draft prospects fail. So the assumption is that Jarek McKinnon will secure his role. Well, so the assumption is Jarek McKinnon's role is secure, and it would be an outlier if a rookie player supplanted him. That's the correct assumption. But you are like many of the other NFL draft analysts who are assuming best-case scenario for every player in this draft class, including Alvin Kamara, who has never rushed for more than 700 yards in a given season in his college career. Alvin Kamara is the most overrated running back in this class by a wide margin. Okay, there's a couple things there that were off base. Number one, Alvin Kamara's lack of rushing opportunity is due to the fact that Joshua Dobbs, the quarterback, runs a ton in that offense, more than any running back that they have. And Jalen Hurd. Jalen Hurd was there and then left the program. My point is, if you're not better than another running back on your roster, if you can't be better than Jalen Hurd, then why are we even talking about you as one of the best backs in this class? We're talking about the best of the best. You weren't even the best on your own team for half the season. Get out of here. He was one of the best of the best. First off, Kamara scored 23 touchdowns on 284 touches at Tennessee. That That's probably, and I don't have the rates in front of me, but that might be one of the highest ratios in the league. But let's go back to Jarek McKinnon. Number one, you said that it's tough to tell if these rookies are going to hit or not. Well, I'm still waiting for Jarek McKinnon to hit. Jarek McKinnon had a single season of opportunity last year, and he did not perform up to expectations. He was below league average across the board in the efficiency metrics because the Minnesota Vikings had one of the league's least efficient run-blocking offensive lines and least efficient overall offensive systems. That was the reason. Jarek McKinnon is one of the most explosive athletes at the position, and film watchers believe that he has great instincts, great balance, and is a strong pass protector, all things that uber-athletes like Kristen Michael did not have on their profile. So Jarek McKinnon checks almost all the boxes you would want in a true NFL workhorse, an every-down player that can succeed between the tackles, outside the tackles, and in the passing game. Jarek McKinnon is one of the most undervalued running backs in the NFL at this very moment, and you dismissing him as a player that could be easily supplanted by Alvin Kamara is foolish. Alvin Kamara is a better player as a runner and as a receiver than Jarek McKinnon is right now. What? Absolutely. Dude, Alvin Kamara is a great player, and you're going to see he may very well go in the first round of the NFL draft. You put Jarek McKinnon on the Tennessee Volunteers in 2016, and he wins the Doak Walker Award. Okay. I mean, okay. Dante Foreman won the award. Dante Foreman is no lock to be relevant in the NFL. It's a pointless comment. You don't want to hear it, and the Jerick McKinnon fans don't want to hear it, but Jerick McKinnon is Bishop Sankey with a longer leash. That's what's happening right now, and it's going to happen. He didn't take the job when Peterson went down. Asiata has always been filtrated in there. He's never taken it. There's, I like McKinnon. His upside is the fact that his athleticism is some of the best that we've ever seen. That's his upside. It is the best. If his athleticism wasn't what it is, his production is crap. 
His college production was in a small conference. He was a running quarterback. He has not played the running back position, so you need to allow him the opportunity to develop. You need to give him more time to develop. He's only had three years and only one year getting meaningful snaps as the featured back. He has not been given enough time to develop yet. And it's one thing to allow a player to flash in a system with a great run-blocking unit. That's the chance that Latavius Murray had. And Latavius Murray failed given that opportunity in Oakland. They said, Latavius, we're going to give you a 70% opportunity share. Show us what you can do behind one of the league's most fantastic run-blocking units. What can you do? Show us what you got, Latavius. And what did Latavius do? 4.0 yards per carry. So I don't think Latavius Murray is going to supplant Jarek McKinnon in Minnesota. And I certainly don't believe Alvin Kamara will usurp Jarek McKinnon either. Again, I don't hate McKinnon's upside because that's what everybody loves about McKinnon. They love his upside. But I want to correct you on one thing. He was a running back in college for a year. (laughs) And... Anyways, he was a he was a running back in college for a full season. Why are you giving me that look? Why are you looking at me afraid? That's a great correction. If you have information for the audience that helps to illuminate Jarek McKinnon's profile, helps to expand on it or correct something I said that was blatantly incorrect, well, that's good, valuable information. You shouldn't be shy to share that with the audience. I'd actually like to also now add a correction to what's going on now. Your daughter squeezed in the frame and it made me chuckle for a second. So now that we're back to the regularly scheduled program, I actually really like Alvin Kamara. And I think that people are going to realize this, that he's a very talented back, despite the fact that Kamara didn't have the massive opportunity in Tennessee. It was part of their offense to drive it. Oh, here we go again. Here we go again. Enough with the system. If you like a player, you'll say, well, the system didn't do him any favors. If you don't like a player, eh, the system propped up his statistics. You always have this hobby horse argument technique that you fall back on and it's lazy and it illuminates nothing. You you do realize though that whether I'm defending a player for lack of opportunity or I'm defending a player for the opportunity that he was given, I'm always on both sides. I don't That's right, you are on both sides. I don't think One that there's show, anybody You love Jarek McKinnon. One show you hate Jarek McKinnon. One show you love Jeremy McNichols. Another show you hate Jeremy McNichols. I don't hate Jeremy McNichols. You're like a flag swaying in the wind. I feel like every morning I need to go to my flagpole and just raise Nate lists and hang him from the top of the flagpole every day and just let him wave in whatever direction the wind is blowing that day. You do realize, though, that I'm pretty fair in my points. I don't hate Jeremy McNichols You're not fair. I don't think you're fair at all. I think you're holding things against players that are not their fault. What? And I think that you're dismissing players for things that are irrelevant. And I think that you're propping up players by excusing away real, true flaws. By excusing away real, true flaws. By excusing away real, true flaws. Oof. All right, let me make up for that by touting Le'Veon Bell real quick. What about all those risk factors that you outlined with Le'Veon Bell, Matt? 
How can you draft Le'Veon over Julio Jones knowing Bell is a Dwayne? Did you change your mind about a suspension or injury risk? No. I retold the story about how I ended up drafting Le'Veon Bell. It wasn't like I was deciding between David Johnson and Le'Veon Bell. Le'Veon Bell fell to me at the end of the first round. The only legitimate choice, the only alternative to Le'Veon Bell at that draft position was Julio Jones. And I explained why Julio Jones was not the pick for me. I went through it in excruciating detail on the last show. I'm not a Le'Veon Bell zealot. Of course, I would rather have David Johnson, even though they're similar age and similar production profiles. Le'Veon Bell has a risk profile that David Johnson does not. I'm not a masochist. I'm not looking for risk. But when you're looking at the value proposition that every player brings, once players like David Johnson are off the board and Le'Veon Bell is the only player left in his tier at the running back position, it becomes a slam dunk draft pick with your first pick in the draft. What am I going to do? Am I going to look at Le'Veon Bell's Voss, his value over stream, which is absurd, over 17? I've never seen a value over stream on playerprofiler.com over 17. It's just foolish. It's It sounds foolish to say it out loud. A 17.8 Voss. So I'm going to overlook that player because he has risk factors that others don't? Nah! You think I'm going to bypass that player just because I called him risky on a podcast once? No. No, 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 no. Why? Because I'm not an idiot. You drop Le'Veon Bell on my lap, I'm going to draft him. Well, you don't look a gift horse in the mouth, Matt. Your delivery was a little stilted on that. I felt like you knew you were about to deliver a cliche. There was a little extra pronunciation behind it. I noticed that. <laughs> oh, God. People don't give Nate Liss enough credit. Look a gift horse in the mouth. But that is an accurate cliche, and I actually know the roots of that cliche. Because before cars, horses were often traded as currency. And one of the ways to check a horse's health was to look at their teeth. Their teeth would often tell the story about how healthy they were. So if you were going to give someone a horse for free, you don't check his mouth. You just take it. Because a free horse is better than no free horse. Even if he's unhealthy. Even if he only lasts a year, it's better than nothing. Those are the roots of that particular cliche. So I'm not even going to ask you for the roots because I already know the roots. But now that's two cliches in one show. We're only 20 minutes in. And already I've received a second banana in my ear and a gift horse. I got to keep them coming, Matt. I like to I like to keep you on your toes with the cliches. But I can say that new information has come to light since we talked about Le'Veon Bell's risk factors a year ago. Because a year ago, I did not fully realize the true league-winning upside that fantasy running backs can deliver. After what we saw from David Johnson and Le'Veon Bell and Ezekiel Elliott in 2016, I now have a better appreciation of it. It's easier for me to push the button on a Le'Veon Bell now than it would have been a year ago. Because I think we all, at least to a degree, forgot about how much of a competitive advantage elite running backs can be for a fantasy team. And risk-driven volatility is something that you want to lean into in Dynasty at the running back position. Not with Jordan Reed. You don't want to lean into career-ending risk because I think the odds that Jordan Reed finishes the 2017 season on the active roster are now slim. And it's 
It's upsetting. It's unsettling to know that. So no, I'm not buying Jordan Reed. I'm not that cavalier with my risk-taking. But with a Rob Gronkowski, with a Le'Veon Bell, I'm absolutely leaning into the risk because I know if they flame out in 2017, they could still help me win a league in 2018. That's not the case in redraft. If Le'Veon Bell gets suspended or gets injured in redraft, it can torpedo my chances. But I like my chances owning Le'Veon Bell for his age 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, and age 30 seasons. I'm confident there will be some Le'Veon Bell-led championships during those seasons. With these high-risk players, you can be out of the playoffs one season and then win the championship the next. And that's better than the players that are delivering five points above replacement for three straight seasons. You'd rather have those wildly volatile players that can win you leagues than stockpile the players that are performing moderately above replacement. If that's all you have, you're not going to win a championship. Yeah, I mean, it's like playing stocks, really, if you think about it. You can own a stock that has a lot of value, and at some point, that stock will tank. You still own the same amount of shares of that stock. It's your choice if you're going to sell it when it's worth nothing. But like you said, when you're talking about a year later, maybe after their production dips, that stock can rebound all the way back up or greater. So owning a guy like Le'Veon Bell or Gronk or one of these guys in Dynasty, it's excellent because you're going to get that high-end production when they're playing the way you expect them to. But even if they dip a little bit, there's always opportunity for rebound. So it's a great point on the Le'Veon Bell topic. Well, they don't dip a little bit. Le'Veon Bell or Gronkowski are either going to be missing games or they're going to be helping you win championships. It's one or the other. But they are Dwaynes. Rob Gronkowski is a Dwayne. Le'Veon Bell is a Dwayne. They're Dwayne Bowe. They're not Reggie Wayne. Wayne or Dwayne. So who's our all-Dwayne team? Got Le'Veon Bell because he's been suspended multiple times after recording hip-hop albums with Snoop Dogg. You've got Rob Gronkowski, who organizes a booze cruise with his brothers in the offseason. You've got Martavis Bryant, who the Steelers refer to in the past tense. He was a great player for us. Wait, what? I've been following him on Instagram. He's working out. He looks great. He's saying all the right things. Why are you referring to him in the past tense? You've got Ezekiel Elliott. Ezekiel Elliott was protected during his time at Ohio State. If Ezekiel Elliott were not Ezekiel Elliott, I think he would have been thrown off the team. Michael Floyd melted a breathalyzer. <laughs> Odell Beckham Jr., would you consider him a Dwayne? Absolutely. He's starting to flash the diva factor, so he's got to be on the Dwayne team. Terrell Pryor? Once again, uh, probably on the Dwayne team. Josh Gordon? <laughs> Sorry, just I hate to do this to Josh Gordon. I mean, obviously, he's the captain of the Dwayne team. Everything. The point guard. He wears number 10 for the soccer team. Like, he is the main Dwayne. <laughs> that's good. Here's a name, Joe Mixon. I think that's our all-Dwayne team right there. I think we could feel the full roster just with those players. I think we could at least feel a, a basketball team with those players. Le'Veon Bell plays basketball. I've watched him on Instagram dunk a ball after knee surgery. Look great. And I would stash all of those players that I just listed on my Dynasty roster with the exception of Michael Floyd. Michael Floyd can go to hell. And I love Chris Godwin. I love Chris Godwin. So yes, I'm prepared to talk about him. 
I like him. He's essentially a lesser version of Juju Smith-Schuster. All the things we like about Juju Smith-Schuster are present with Chris Godwin. Exceptional sophomore season, early breakout age. Then wasn't as productive in his junior year. Still came out early. So we like the younger players that are coming out early. They're more precocious. But Chris Godwin... 11 touchdowns last year. Didn't reach 1,000 yards like he did in his sophomore year, but still 11 touchdowns. Very promising receiver. I also like the fact that he's 6'1", 205, because on Pro Football Reference, what you'll often see happen is that players will check in at the combine an inch or two shorter, but 5 to 10 pounds heavier. So Chris Godwin could be 6'2", 210, and those are interesting measurables. You have that age-adjusted production and those kind of measurables in terms of his stature. If he can somehow flash some burst and agility, woof, I'd be very excited about Chris Godwin. Another great name. God in his last name. Who wouldn't want God in their last name? God and Win put together. God and Win. Oh, my God. Woo! That's a win. That's a Woo! win. All right. Chris Godwin for the win. My God. All right. When I watched him, um, I thought he did a good job of uh, cutting angles when he notices defenders are in a good position. Used his body well on contested catches. Does good head and shoulder fakes against coverage. The other thing is he's not afraid to work over the middle of the field, and that's where I think he might really have to make his money in the NFL. He, He really did seem like a tough fearless competitor a lot of tacklers bounced off of him and like you said when you compared him to juju that size that fight that's great because you've got to be a denser player if you want to survive going through the middle of the field the one thing honestly though when i watched him is that i didn't get the impression that he was one of the most explosive players in the class he's not he's not he's richard matthews and that's fine he's richard matthews richard matthews is a prototypical nfl flanker that's what chris godwin is especially if he can check in at 210 be a great run blocker, and be excellent out of that flanker position and be the target leader for a team in a couple of years. You can absolutely see that in Chris Godwin's range of outcomes. And Kenny Galladay. The Kenny Galladay phenomenon is interesting. We've been talking about Kenny Galladay for a long time. We liked Kenny Galladay at Northern Illinois. Kenny Galladay was one of a handful of small school size speed specimens, and we identified him as the best of the small school size speed specimens. He also went to a school that was larger than the other schools, certainly larger than Marion College, where Krishan Hogan went. I mean, Northern Illinois played some legitimate programs. What conference is Northern Illinois in? Can you tell me who they played? This is a callback from about 15 episodes ago. Do you... Who are some of the teams that Kenny Galladay played in college? Well, I believe they play in the Missouri Valley Conference, or is it the MAC? Come on, bro. You should know this. You tell me. You tell me. I don't know. You're the one that brought up who the teams that he played. You remember when I did this on an episode? I brought up the schedule that a guy played, and you go, tell me who he played. Who Who is on the schedule? And I think I got grilled for about four minutes. What I'm saying is he was playing against opponents whose stadiums were not just in cornfields. They had an actual stadium with seats and a press box and locker rooms. That's all I'm saying. And when you go to the Kenny Galladay profile, he has the most complete profile of any wide receiver in this year's draft class. 
I mean, this is the thing we've been marveling about for quite some time. And then he goes to a team that has no number three receiver. Anquan Bolden's gone. Once Anquan Bolden leaves, before Kenny Galladay was drafted, the number three receiver on the Lions depth chart was TJ Jones. Do you even know who TJ Jones is? I do, but I just do not care about TJ Jones. No one cares about TJ Jones. Kenny Galladay's 6'4", close to 220 pounds, runs a 4'5 flat. To put that in context, that's a 110.7, 92nd percentile height adjusted speed score. There are very, very, very few 220 pound wide receivers that run a 4'5'0 or faster. So immediately he has the size and the speed to fit that prototypical X receiver fantasy WR1 prototype that we chase. Look at the other measurables, burst score, agility score, both above the 50th percentile, and it gets better. The breakout age, 19.8. He broke out at North Dakota. He was North Dakota's leading receiver as a sophomore and then decided to transfer. He said, I'm bigger, I'm better than North Dakota, I'm transferring to Northern Illinois. So he had to sit out a year, and then he ended up posting a 41.8%, 83rd percentile dominator rating at Northern Illinois. He delivered what we ask of wide receivers, and that's to translate exceptional athleticism into efficient on-field production, to be dominant. If you're big and athletic, you better be dominant. Cody Latimer couldn't do it. Cordero Patterson couldn't do it. Jalen Strong couldn't do it. We criticize players that are underperforming their athleticism at the college level. All Kenny Galladay did at North Dakota and at Northern Illinois was to meet or exceed his athleticism in terms of percentile-based college dominance. He did it at a young age, and he did it with an incredible share of the receiving yards and touchdowns at Northern Illinois, well over 40%. So this is a dominant producer that has the stature and the athleticism to be a top 10 wide receiver in the NFL, in fantasy football. It's why he should have been a first-round pick in rookie drafts. We talked about getting him in the second round. We had him and Chris Godwin. Chris Godwin, Kenny Galladay. Kenny Galladay, Chris Godwin. Those were the targets in the second round. If you're drafting wide receivers, and then you draft Taewon Taylor and Chad Williams in the third round, if you're drafting wide receivers. But as it turns out, now that we see how quickly Kenny Galladay is adapting to the NFL, we weren't bullish enough. It's very possible Kenny Galladay is the best wide receiver in this class, and it may not be close because there are no other wide receivers in this entire draft class that are scheduled to receive significant targets this season not mike williams he's probably not going to play until october at best not Corey davis he's parked behind richard matthews and eric decker it's not john ross have you heard from john ross this preseason no one has he's been hurt and right now he's behind aj green brandon lafell and tyler boyd who is going to command a significant target share this year from this rookie class It may or may not be Chris Godwin, and most likely it will be Kenny Galladay. And there are some players this show has never liked. Sterling Shepard, Lamar Miller, and always and forever, Zay Jones.
it's also a pipe dream, is the idea that Sterling Shepard will ever be a WR2 in fantasy. He has a WR3 ceiling. I believe we were talking about this at this time last year. That is indeed a fact. I believe we both agreed that as long as Odell Beckham was in New York, Sterling Shepard would never be a wide receiver one. He could have some wide receiver one weeks, and he did, but he would never finish the season as a wide receiver one, and he did not. But now the New York Giants, as of today, this will be old news by the time you hear this by a couple days, they have signed Brandon Marshall to be that wide receiver two that the team needs, and undoubtedly Sterling Shepard's production is going to fizzle out from here on out. That news was actually announced two days ago. We're recording on Thursday. The show won't be released until Sunday. So this news is going to be five days old by the time people (laughs) receive it. All of this news will be long forgotten. I hate the breaking news shows, particularly on this show, because we don't drop the shows until Saturday or Sunday, and they're guaranteed to be at least two days late. In the case of this Brandon Marshall news, four days late. But I keep hearing that Sterling Shepard's going to be fine. Yeah, Sterling Shepard's going to be fine. All those that drafted Sterling Shepard in Dynasty Rookie Drafts last year in the top five picks still clinging to hope that he's going to be fine. He's going to be fine, Nate. He's fine. They only run three wide receiver sets in New York. More three wide receiver sets than any other team. Sterling Shepard's going to be on the field a lot, Nate. There's nothing to worry about. He's going to be fine. Just fine. Here's the problem. You didn't draft Sterling Shepard fifth overall last season to be just fine. You didn't draft him before Corey Coleman and Josh Doxson and Michael Thomas to be just fine. Fine's not good enough. You're moving the goalpost to rationalize a bad pick. The Giants are telling you Sterling Shepard is not ever going to be a featured weapon in any passing game. He is a number three option. That's his ceiling. He's a wide receiver three in fantasy. That's his ceiling on a prolific offense, assuming he's getting snaps. If he were on a different team, his ceiling would be even lower. He is not an exciting player, and that's not where you invest your rookie draft capital on low ceiling players, slot possession receivers like Sterling Shepard. That's what his profile told us coming out of Oklahoma. As an old prospect who was small, lacked agility, and lacked college dominance, it was clear looking at his profile on playerprofiler.com that Sterling Shepard would not hold a number two job in the NFL for long. And sure enough, here comes Brandon Marshall ambling over to the New York Giants roster to marginalize Sterling Shepard. And all of you that drafted Sterling Shepard in your dynasty leagues a year ago should have sold him after his aberrant seven-touchdown season in 2016. He will never replicate that. And by not trading him, you've blown an opportunity to retain value. His value has collapsed as of this Brandon Marshall trade. And all of you that are now currently holding a Sterling Shepard on your Dynasty League teams are suckers. (laughs) 
And in regards to our podcast recording on an odd time of the week, I'd rather be four days late on the Brandon Marshall news than a year late on the Sterling Shepard news. You should have gotten rid of him, guys. (laughs) We talked about it last year. No, 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 no. No, no, that's brilliant, though. I love that. That's brilliant. You're going to get the Brandon Marshall news five days late, but it's okay because we were a year early on the Sterling Shepard news. Hey, Matt, after last week's episode, what happened to the fourth and fifth biggest losers? You guys stopped at number three. That's fair. That's the kind of buzzard message that we're going to read on the show because, correct, you got us. We forgot (laughs) about loser number four and loser number five. And what's interesting is both those losers are on the Houston Texans. Loser number four, Lamar Miller. Loser number five, Will Fuller. Now, Lamar Miller's a loser for a pretty obvious reason. The Texans acquired Dante Foreman. We've talked about Dante Foreman a lot on the show. You love Dante Foreman. I think Dante Foreman is a better between-the-tackles runner than Lamar Miller. And you think Dante Foreman is a better all-around player than Lamar Miller. Either way, Lamar Miller has serious competition for touches in that backfield now. Just look at the draft capital alone. Don't even look at the profile. Don't even look at Dante Foreman's 90th percentile speed score. Forget that. Forget the 2,000 yards he rushed for at Texas in 11 games last year. Just look at the fact that the Texans drafted him in the third round. Lamar Miller's touches are headed south. Lamar Miller has peaked. We've seen peak Lamar Miller in fantasy. I believe that from here on out, every year, Lamar Miller's touches are going to decline because he's a fake bell cow. So explain this to me. With What is wrong with Zay Jones then? Incredible college production. Incredible athleticism. So then I don't understand. So you love Jarek McKinnon, who's a great athlete. Zay Jones is an awesome athlete. Maybe not on that level, but on a very good level. Zay Jones played the position for numerous years and killed it at the position. One of the best seasons we've ever seen in a college football player. So how in the world can you like some of these players and not like Zay Jones? I don't, I, these, are the, these are the things I'm trying to point out. Because Zay Jones' yards per reception was 11.0 because he was playing exclusively out of the slot. He doesn't know how to play X or Z yet. He's going to have to learn the position all over from scratch at the NFL level because he was in a gimmick system that inflated his counting stats, and the inflation is revealed by a utter lack of efficiency. That's the problem with Zay Jones. If he did it at Alabama, it would be a little different. But he also did it in a Conference USA program that's not a Power 5 Conference school. So if you're a non-Power 5 Conference school, putting up huge video game numbers, playing exclusively out of the slot while posting league-bottom yards per reception, that is the very definition of a college compiler. And even if you have great athleticism, I'm going to question the production. And if I'm going to question the production, I can't put you in my top 10. I don't hate Zay Jones like I hate Cooper Cup. I have Zay Jones well inside my top 20 wide receivers in this class. Absolutely. I'm drafting Zay Jones ahead of Krishan Hogan and Chad Williams and a lot of the other small school players. I'm also drafting him ahead of the overrated Power 5 Conference wide receivers like Amara Darbo and Ardarius Stewart and Chad Hansen. But I'm not drafting him ahead of bona fide 
power five conference wide receivers who played the X receiver position, who played the Y receiver position, who played the Z receiver position at the college level, and who also posted superior age-adjusted production. I will be drafting players like Isaiah Ford and Katie Cannon before Zay Jones. I see your point, and this was your opportunity to make up for the last time we had this debate, but Zay Jones and PFF already did it. He had a ton of downfield targets, 20 yards and beyond. And I don't have the number in front of me. Why didn't it show up in the yards per reception then? Because he had 150. Then he wasn't converting them. Because if he converted all those targets, then his yards per reception would have been higher. But it wasn't. Because he was catching most of these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of targets that were sent his way very close to the line of scrimmage. Of course... If you're going to get targeted hundreds of times in a season, some of them occasionally will be downfield, of course. You realize that that was what he was targeted for was in the short area, but he plays down the field. So the whole beginning of this debate, you have Zay Jones ranked ahead of Isaiah Ford. I want you on the record saying this. Hold on. Let me finish this. Do you have him ranked ahead of Isaiah Ford? Because that's my line of demarcation in the rankings. Do you have these overrated players like Zay Jones and Cooper Cup ranked ahead of Isaiah Ford? Yes or no? I'll answer the question after I make this point. Zay Jones, the whole debate here started when I asked you about it and you said that he doesn't do anything downfield. Two things. One, he does do a ton of work downfield. I didn't say he doesn't do anything downfield. I said that that's not where he typically operated. You said that he's not nuanced. He's going to need work to do stuff downfield because his yards per reception are low. I brought up Keenan Allen last time. I brought up Antonio Brown last time. The same problem that Kevin White had at West Virginia. They're not the same. Kevin White did it for one year. This guy did it for two years. He put up Kevin White's numbers the year prior to this season. He had two dominant years in college. So he's not like Kevin White, and he's still a good athlete. And so I don't understand. This is the funniest part. So you're hinging the fact that you don't like Zay Jones or you don't have him ranked higher on his yards per reception. But you like all these other guys with these video game numbers. Who do I like that has video game numbers? Who? Who do I like that has a low college dominator but huge production? Jeremy McNichols had some video game type rushing numbers. Deontay Foreman had some big rushing numbers. 1,800 rush yards in a season is... Jeremy McNichols checks every box. Of course I like Jeremy McNichols. So what box does Zay Jones not check? The yards per reception one that you're going to go... Well, that must indicate the fact that he doesn't do anything downfield. Well, when you catch the ball 158 times, maybe we need to get a fucking math teacher in here to explain this. When you catch the ball 158 times, those 40 catches that were for over 20 yards are going to hardly affect the number. It's not going to move it that much. That's like 30%. It's not going to move the needle as much as the majority of 110 or 115 catches. You're missing the larger point here, which is this is a value conversation. No one likes Jeremy McNichols. No one thinks Jeremy McNichols has first round potential. If that happened, I would object to it because this is generally a bad class. What I've said all along is there's only one true first round talent in this class and it's Joe Mixon. That's it. What I'm objecting to is the zeal with which so many football analysts are celebrating Zay Jones. That's all I'm doing. I don't hate Zay Jones. I have him in my top 15, just like I have Jeremy McNichols in my top 10. I don't hate either one of these players. And I see the similarities that you're talking about. 
but Jeremy McNichols is being graded as a mid to late round pick in the NFL draft. That's not what's happening to Zay Jones. That's my objection. Again, this is such a learning exercise for would-be fantasy analysts. You have stepped in every single pothole along this journey. You have missed the point on every argument. Can I make a point here? How about how about when you say that you're making a point, but you don't say that that's the point you're trying to make? It would make it difficult for someone to figure out the overall thesis of what you're saying. You didn't say any of that during this entire... I have rankings online! www.playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings. If you did any prep whatsoever, looked at the rankings once, checked the show sheet once, listened to the clip of Marshawn Lynch talking to John Wertheim once, you would know all these things! Oh, 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 forgot one. People love Cooper Cup. Why? Because he had a great senior bowl or he had a great shrine bowl or whatever the fuck bowl he went to where he was making plays in practice. I can't believe these sucker draft analysts get excited about watching players in practice, posting vines of fucking practice. Such a circle jerk exercise going to the senior bowl, watching practice. Cooper Cup. He's fine. He has a 40% dominator rating. That's great. But he's also 24 years old. His breakout age, 20.2, was 55th percentile. His yards per reception was not impressive. His college dominator was very good, but it wasn't exceptional for a small school player. Eastern Washington better have a 40% dominator rating at Eastern Washington. So Cooper Cup needs to wow us at the Combine for me to be interested at all. And no, I'm not going to be going back and looking at his Senior Bowl practice vines when I decide who I'm going to draft in Dynasty Rookie Drafts. I do not watch clips from the Senior Bowl practices because they don't matter. Senior Bowl activities. If you're a junior, you don't get invited to these events and you don't get the unreasonable hype. Have they started with the Ed McCaffrey comps yet? Because that's coming, right? Cooper Cup is going to qualify for Social Security in a couple of years. Cooper Cup. This how many Coopers day? do you know? And if you know any, how many of them aren't douchebags? <laughs> Most ridiculous hype train I've seen in years. Cooper Cup. People are going to draft Cooper Cup in rookie drafts ahead of players like KD Cannon. You know that, right? Cooper Cup. The hell out of here. Draft Twitter should be ashamed of itself. Cooper Cup. Please. Are you done? Yeah. One more. Just like I see Chad Hansen ranked ahead of a lot of these wide receivers. Chad Hansen is supposed to be drafted in the third round. He's getting a third round draft grade by a lot of scouting services, and I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. That's why we're talking about these guys today. I don't get it. We've talked about the guys you should be getting in the last few episodes of this show. This episode is a lot about the guys you should just avoid. Just don't draft them. It doesn't matter 
what slot you're at and what round you're at in your dynasty rookie draft. Just don't draft these guys. And if you don't like any of the wide receivers that are available, just draft a running back. Just avoid these likely busts because this is how these wasted picks happen. The reason why dynasty rookie draft pick hit rates are so low in the second, third, and fourth rounds is because you have these dynasty league enthusiasts drafting these wide receivers that have close to zero potential to being fantasy viable at the next level, and they're just drafting them anyway based on what these scouting services are saying, and these scouting services don't know what the fuck to look at when evaluating prospects. You you don't want to hear what I heard about Chad Hansen then after you just went on that. Go ahead. What is the fascination with Chad Hansen? Right, Hansen. So he got a... What a terrible name by the way at least malachi dupree has a cool name at least dd westbrook has a cool name at least amara darbo has a cool name chad hansen the fuck out of here chad hansen i think he's actually related to the hansons that's what i heard earlier today the douche name okay that's not what i heard anyways this is really gonna irk you because it was a one-for-one white receiver for white receiver comparison I'm shocked that he's a white receiver. Just shocked. This is news to me. I couldn't believe Some people. This, the knowledge that Chad Hansen is a white receiver. Stunning. So we talked about this last week. Chad Hansen's the guy that was getting a lot of buzz at the Senior Bowl, similar to Amara I Darbo. I don't care. I don't care. Hold I on. don't care. He's Jared Arborderis. We're Hold moving on. on. I don't want to hear it. Hold on. No, it wasn't Jared Arborderis. It was worse than that. It was. No, I'm saying he's Jared well, Arborderis. He's being called Eric he's Decker. He's irrelevant. He's not going to be anything. Who the fuck said he's Eric Decker? Who said that? <laughs> who said it? Tell me who said it. I don't it. remember their name. What pea-brained primate said that Chad Hansen is Eric fucking Decker? This is making me very angry. I've said the F word more in the last five minutes than I have at any point in time in the history of this show. Because seeing these draft grades on these bad receivers and then hearing these ridiculous comps, it makes me insane. I don't want to... Uh... Who said it? Who said it? Who compared Chad Hansen to Eric Decker? Liam Neeson kicking in the door looking for this guy. Who said it? I heard it on a podcast. They didn't say the guy's name. What podcast? What podcast? Uh, Saturday to Sunday, Sunday to Saturday. I don't know what the podcast is called. Why are you caping up for these podcasters that don't know what the hell they're talking about? Here's the thing, though. I just want to say it's true. Chad Hansen, last year, if you're looking at his production, he was buried on the depth chart, Matt. I don't care. Jared Arbideris. Next. Man, we're just we're just nuking these guys. All right, fine. You mentioned his name. By the way, I know it's not Arbideris. That's a joke. I referred to him as Arbideris last year. Many people on YouTube criticized me. I know his name's Jared Abraderis. I know that like Abracadabra. I get it. But it's fun to call him Arbideris to piss off people in Wisconsin that have much of their identity tied to the Green Bay Packers and the correct pronunciation of all the players on the Green Bay Packers roster. Trolling you people. Get a life. Don't draft Chad Hansen. And some of the players that we like that scored zero fantasy points are hilarious. Jeremy McNichols is the other guy in this draft class. He looks a lot like a receiver, but he's also a successful running back. He could play either position at the next level. When you watch McNichols, it looks like a wide receiver playing running back. And I felt the same way about CJ Procise last year. Do you like McNichols, Fusu? Yeah, I'm a big fan of McNichols. Uh, he... Yes. Woo-hoo! Woo-hoo! Yeah, 
He was actually recruited as a wide receiver, so that's... Shut your mouth. Yeah. Was he really? I didn't know that. We did not go over that before the show. Yeah, he was... Yeah, I originally came into Boise State as a wide receiver. No I think shit. I'm not. I'm not sure if he even played running back in high school. I think. I think he only started playing running back at Boise State. I like his running ability. He's got pretty good strength. I think there's there's questions about his vision and his cutting ability. I think he tends to take a lot of runs wide, but you know, Jai had the same tendency, and Jai you know learned to improve on his vision and. Uh, in the zone scheme in Miami, so, I mean... McNichols' vision is awful, though. On the second level, yeah, McNichols does not <laughs> oh, see God. those diagonal vectors on the second level. He runs right into safeties whenever given the opportunity. I love you, McNichols. Are you already stealing Fusu Vu's Ishmael Zamora hot take? You're shameless. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I told you I would. I told him to his face that I would amplify his message about Ishmael Zamora. I have over 10,000 followers, and I want to get the word out about Ishmael Zamora, and I am leveraging Fusu View's analysis and adding to it. And like an artist who is building upon the works of his contemporaries, I am building on the work of Fusu View for the public good getting the word out educating the fantasy football community about the upside that is inherent in ishmael zamora if you're fusu view you want me to supercharge your take that's what i'm doing to his take i'm taking a take that was charged positive charge and i'm supercharging it. i'm transporting fusu view and his ishmael zamora take to the farthest corners of the earth i have followers in ireland New Zealand, Australia, Italy, Ireland, Brazil, England, Romania. You snuck Ireland in there twice. But keep going. Keep going. It was two Ireland. Maybe it was a different Ireland. Are you done? Was that necessary? That yeah, was necessary. Go on. Go on. Sorry. I I was trying to make a point. And now I lost my train of thought because you had to get in there with your duplicate Ireland correction. Thank you for the contribution, Nate. You've been great today. Thank you. No, no, thank you. That was sarcastic. You've been awful. Oh, I'm sorry. Pick worst show. Pick up at Ireland and keep going. What what was after Ireland? I mean, few people are able to tout a player with more just sheer volume than Matt Kelly. When I like a player, I let the world know, hey, this is a good player. I don't just set the beacon out into space and maybe it reaches one of the planets, maybe it doesn't. No, I set out 20, 30 beacons. 20, 30 tweets, articles, entire shows dedicated to a particular player. YouTube channel. Go to YouTube. Type in Roto Underworld Radio. Already, there's an Ishmael Zamora hot take. Courtesy of Fusu View on the Roto Underworld YouTube channel. And YouTube is available to the aliens at this point, Nate. And what I will do with Zamora is I will be such a loud advocate that it will drown out any of my failed takes on other NFL draft prospects, assuming Ishmael Zamora hits. So if Ishmael Zamora ends up breaking out as a rookie, oh, (laughs) you ain't seen nothing yet. Uh, It'll be right out of the Matt Harmon, Allen Robinson playbook. (laughs) 
Did you know that Matt Harmon touted Cordell Patterson? Did you know that Matt Harmon had Doriel Green Beckham ranked ahead of Amari Cooper? No, no one remembers that. But you remember that he loved Allen Robinson, right? Because he only sent 500 Allen Robinson tweets compared to his five Cordell Patterson tweets. So you inundate the audience with celebratory messages if your tout hits and you pretend the touts that miss never happened. That's the Matt Harmon playbook. So we are going to run our plays right out of the Matt Harmon playbook on Ishmael Zamora. That's incredible. I, You know, I knew that he loved Allen Robinson. I've always associated Matt Harmon and Allen Robinson. And I knew he liked Cordero Patterson, but I never knew that he had DGB over Amari Cooper. That is mind-blowing. It's bad. You would never know it because it's camouflaged within 78,000 Allen Robinson gifs. <laughs> That's a bad take right there. No, everyone has bad takes, Nate. That's the point. We all have bad takes. I have a lot of bad takes out there. I just don't emphasize them. I don't talk about them. They sink into the ether. It's like they never happened. We emphasize the takes that hit. That's the great magic trick. Brian Hill is exciting. Brian Hill has a prototypical size, six foot two twenty, runs a four five four. So if you account for his weight, that's a one oh three point one seventieth percentile speed score, above average burst, and above average agility for his size as well. At six foot two twenty, if you have an eleven thirty five agility score, that's upper percentile size adjusted agility. And he was also a dominant producer at Wyoming. 35% college dominator. I like Brian Hill. I think Brian Hill could easily be the number three back and become fantasy relevant very quickly because of injuries in his rookie season. It's a good take. Um, Hill's another tough runner with feature size, like you mentioned, but he's also a plus athlete and the most productive running back in the history of Wyoming's program. Granted, there was probably not many great ones before him. Is Wyoming one of these systems that produces spectacular college running back stats a la Boise State? No, definitely not. Not like Boise State. But I want to say that Hill shows some of the best vision in the class. And honest to God, his ability to use blockers and preemptively set up his blocks was evident and he showed a solid blend of toughness and power as a runner as well. And he was one of the best players I've honestly ever watched at using the blockers when they're in front of him. It's pretty incredible. If, if you get to watch any game film of him, the way that he's setting stuff up and his pace and his varied tempo, um, th the way he mixes it up is pretty incredible. And when the blockers are in front of him, he was definitely one of the best. But when they aren't, he does a pretty good job of slipping through creases, but he starts to get really loose when the blockers aren't in front of him, it makes himself a bit vulnerable because he has a bit of an upright running style. Because he's six foot tall. He doesn't have an upright running style. He's just tall. He does have an upright running style. Just say he's tall. He is tall, but there's tall running backs. That don't, I mean, Adrian Peterson, yes, upright running style. Very upright running style. Also right. six foot tall. But let's not forget, plays in the Mountain West Conference. I don't want to do this right now because I feel like we beat this one to death. No, just don't do that. Just be positive. I like Brian Hill. You like Brian Hill. We have Brian Hill in our top 20. 
because I can see Brian Hill being a very productive NFL player. He has the vision and the explosion where he can be a one-cut runner in a zone-blocking scheme, find those creases and crevices, and then boom, explode through those holes, and he has the receiving capability. There are no big red flags on the Brian Hill profile. That means if he somehow lands on a depth chart that's going to give him opportunity in year one, I think he will rise to the challenge. Talked about how last year Paul Perkins did not rise to the challenge in New York. If Brian Hill were on the Giants' depth chart as Paul Perkins was last year, I think Brian Hill would have been more productive. Brian Hill's a better athlete and was more productive at the college level than Paul Perkins. But the nice thing about Brian Hill is, like Paul Perkins, coming out at a very early age, 21 years old, all of his production came at ages 18, 19, 20. That's what we want in our football players to be precocious producers. The other thing about Brian Hill that we should mention is he had more carries than Deontay Foreman did this year. 349, played 14 games, was healthy all year. Workhorse. So he has that workhorse back thing. Workhorse. And he's got a season on his profile with 20. That's Brian Hill to take a handoff. Oh, my goodness. Wow, this episode. You can tell it's getting towards the end when the the manual mouth sound effects come out. Uh, Malachi Dupree is another one of those guys where I don't want to make an excuse for him. But before I get into sort of what I've seen in him, I just want to talk about his college production. Never more than 43 receptions in any year, which is not pretty on paper, I realize. 22 yards per reception as a freshman and then 16 and 14. It dipped a little. But the real thing about LSU is that, number one, Malachi has had other quality receivers on the side of him. And also, LSU hasn't had a viable quarterback since Zach Mettenberger back in 2013. So so to put it all on Malachi Dupree seems a little unfair. And, and this is also a team that had Leonard Fournette, Darius Geis, some premier running backs that you would have no choice but to just give them the ball 20 times a game because you're going to win games that way. But when I watch Malachi Dupree, obviously, long strider, smooth runner for his frame. He runs clean routes. Does a good job concealing his route until he reaches his break, plays inside, plays outside, tracks the ball well. Good jumper and a great downfield blocker. The thing with Malachi Dupree is I can't tell exactly what to get from his athleticism. I don't know whether he's a great athlete or a good athlete, and that's why I need to see the combine. Malachi Dupree has the ability to go higher in this draft than I think people expect. He could be a third-round pick. Oh, my God. If his combine works out the way people hope it does. But I think Malachi Dupree is shaping up more as a fourth-round or fifth-round pick. And I have some friends that I talk to on Twitter all the time that I really respect that have Malachi Dupree in their top five. And <laughs> <laughs> they shall remain <laughs> anonymous. Malachi <laughs> 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 Uh. <laughs> you need some water <laughs> malachi dupree is just the baseline guy his bmi is the absolute baseline he's tajay sharp 
And Tajay Sharp wasn't even good last year. And in terms of production, we have College Dominator, thankfully. Without the College Dominator, Malachi Dupree would be fucked. <laughs> but luckily, we have College Dominator, which compares Malachi Dupree's receiving yards and receiving touchdowns to the other receivers in that passing game. So it factors out quarterback play. LSU is one of the least prolific offenses in college football. So the Dominator rating on Malachi Dupree was about average. 32.3%, 57th percentile, and his college yards per reception, 15.3, 60th percentile the last couple of years. So he looks like an above average producer, and he's one of the younger wide receivers in this class. That's the one thing about this class that I, that's noteworthy. A lot of older prospects in this class. So when you see Juju Smith-Schuster and you see Malachi Dupree, you perk up because you see a young player. Very few of these young wide receivers, Malachi Dupree broke out at age 18.9, 91st percentile. So as a young sophomore, he was producing at the breakout threshold. But that's all he's been doing is producing at the breakout threshold. He hasn't done anything special. Three touchdowns? 14.5 yards per reception last season? If you're not going to get huge volume, you got to show me something, Malachi. you got to score some touchdowns. you got to break some long runs after the catch. I know you're asking him to show you something, Matt, but let's not forget that this year, LSU, maybe we could put like a drum roll sound effect in here. Their quarterbacks combined to throw 12 total passing touchdowns in 2016. So nobody in this offense caught any touchdowns I mean Malachi was tied for the top and just nobody was catching any because they weren't throwing any they had nearly as many interceptions as passing touchdowns but the one thing that I do want to add about Malachi Dupree is when I watch him I feel like I'm watching Justin Hunter part two that's right and I also have a question for you Uh oh if you were a dynamic weapon in the passing game if the offensive coordinator looks at his weapons looks at what he has at his disposal and he sees a special talent in Malachi Dupree. Wouldn't you think he would call more pass plays? Wouldn't you think they would find a way to get him the ball more frequently? Isn't there a chicken and the egg dilemma here with Malachi Dupree and his dominator rating? I think so. But again, the one thing that makes it really hard to to side with that is that you had Darius Geis, you had Leonard Fournette, you had this great backfield. But no, I agree. You love to do this. You love to just keep reciting the same players. Tell us again how many passes their quarterback threw. Well, Danny Etling. I mean, tell us again who their running backs are again. Gee, I don't know who this Leonard Fournette is. Please explain to me who their running backs were. Please enlighten me, Nate. There are just some offenses. Like you said, this is not a prolific offense. So maybe they were not confident in their quarterback to throw the ball to Malachi Dupree. But the problem is Malachi Dupree. This is the excuse making that you always hear around these five-star high school prospects. Then they go ahead and get drafted three rounds too early because NFL scouts were rationalizing away their underwhelming college resumes and then they become Justin Hunter at the next level just like you said earlier. Do you want to move on to the next wide receiver? I feel like Yes, we... I do. If you draft Malachi Dupree in your Dynasty League rookie draft, you don't know what the fuck you're doing. <laughs> oh god. Elijah Hood turns some serious heads, and, and here's why, not just because what you see on film is impressive, but let me drop some numbers on you. What's the root of that phrase, turn heads? Why would he turn heads? Wouldn't the heads be staring at him while he's working out? Would they be turned talking to others, and then he would do something impressive, and then everyone would turn back and face him because it was so impressive? 
Yeah. Is that the turning of the head, or is there another reason why people's heads are turning? No, that's that's right. I think when something magnificent is happening next to you, I think it goes back to a beautiful woman, right? Of course, you're standing, you're talking, and there's a girl who's so attractive that she turns her head and you look, unless you're married, and you look another direction. Whatever you're supposed to do to not start an argument or a fight or whatever it is. Is this the time when you think people start masturbating to the show? I think they already have. I think long ago, long, long ago, Matt, when I was talking about Leonard Fournette at 240 and all my fitness background, I picture them picturing me in my fitness attire, 1980s style. Douchey hoodie. <laughs> Douchey hoodie. I don't understand. It's, I'll burn this hoodie. I don't want to go through this again. Cut the sleeves off to get it over with. And I'll never forget the great Krishan Hogan debate of our time in which Nate List revealed his resentment of janitors. I think that's when you ask me if people stroke it to the show. And I know they do. That's a fact. But let me get back to Jerome Lane. I really do. I hate you. This has been a long show. We've been in front of these mics for well over an hour. And I can't stand the, you right this now. This isn't you talking. This isn't the real you. So, Jerome Lane? I'm going to strap you in an electric <laughs> chair and pull the lever. Oh, gosh. Well, if this is the last thing I'll ever get to say on this planet, let me talk about Jerome Lane. He's such a polarizing <laughs> prospect. So... <laughs> limited <laughs> college experience, Matt, two years at the position, formerly a linebacker, a defensive end, and a safety. <laughs> this class is just right? hilarious. <laughs> right? I mean... This wide receiver class, and it just keeps getting better and better. Former linebackers. Go ahead, Nate. No, I mean, this is unbelievable. Krishan Hogan was a janitor a couple of weeks ago, and now we're talking about Jerome Lane. Let's do this, so... Why do you not like janitors? What do you have against janitors? They do great work. Uh, no, I'm just saying. Where would we be without janitors? We'd be shuffling through trash. Why would you diminish the contribution whoa, whoa, whoa. of janitors in our society? First off, j there's no janitor in my house that takes my trash to my trash can and that takes it out to my curb for... I think you're looking for... I'm not talking about in your house, janitors in municipal buildings, in schools. We need janitors. They provide a critical service. Show some respect. <laughs> I am showing respect. I brought it. You're not, clearly. Oh, Krishan Hogan was a janitor last week because that's the lamest profession I could think of. It's not the lamest profession I could think of. At least I'm acknowledging that Krishan Hogan was a janitor. Props to him. Now let's get to Jerome Lane. Dude, fuck you. You're not, you are trying to backpedal your way out of this. And you are, you are being burned worse than Logan Ryan last year. I wish I was in an electric chair right now. So if I can just finish this goddamn point. Look. Yeah, clean this up. He is, is that a janitor reference?